That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, they say that winning cures everything, or it cures a lot of things that ail sports franchises. But what happens when your team isn't winning a whole bunch? What happens when your team gets known as a lovable loser? I mean, are they a lovable loser? Your trailblazers are going to end the month of February winless in the month. They will have not won a basketball game in the month of February. I want to know at what point diehard Blazer fans have had enough of the losing to the point where they're just tuned out. I kind of think that the Blazers are at that point of the season. But it got me thinking about some of the other sports franchises that we have termed as lovable losers. The Cubs had the curse of, uh, you know, the, the Billy Goat Tavern. The Red Sox had the curse of the Bambino. But were those things different than a franchise that has just seemingly run itself into the ground? I know that growing up, I rooted for a San Francisco Giants team that didn't have a lot of success on the field. I remember going to Fan Appreciation Day at Candlestick Park and seeing a team that lost its 100th game of the season. And uh, and I remember going and looking around and thinking, gosh, there's only about uh, uh, 14,000 people in this giant ballpark and thinking to myself, yeah, but this is my team. And, you know, as uh, as Dwight Clark once said of Candlestick Park, he said it was a dump, but it was but it was my dump. It was our dump. Uh, But I remember my childhood spent with the San Francisco Giants watching them struggle. And they weren't, you know, obviously competitive on the field. And in the 1985 season, on the final day of the season, the Giants lost that 100th game. They were 62-100 and 100 that year. They were dead last in their division. They won only 38% of their games all year long. They only drew 800,000 fans. Their, uh, their best pitcher was Mike Kruko, and uh, he was a guy who, uh, you know, if you look at throughout the history of his career, uh, had had some decent years. But, you know, he was a 20-game winner in 1986. But in 1985, he went 8-11. And I remember I rooted for that team. And I have to be honest, as the Giants have found some more success after that, you know, in 1993, they won 103 games. I uh, started to not be able to know what to do with the success. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know what to do with it as a fan because I had been conditioned that my team was going to win somewhere between 60 and you know 79 games they were going to be under 500 they were going to be um, my team though 
and I didn't know what to do with the Giants when they started winning. Now, I know the Blazer fans are going, what are you talking about? I'd be love to have a team that would win 50-plus games, matter in the playoffs, uh, be able to go to playoff games and watch playoff games on TV and root for the team and feel good about it. What are you talking about? But uh, what I am talking about is how fans get conditioned. And I was conditioned as a young Giants fan, and in some respects a young 49ers fan, to sort of uh, endure the losing and, uh, you know, and, and, and be okay with it to a certain extent as a fan. But I'm wondering in this era of, hey, I can just flip the channel and I can watch something else, in this era of, hey, I don't necessarily have to be a fan of my team and my sport because the way that the sports seasons go, there's a bunch of overlap. I can just kind of tune out for a while and then jump on something else. If it's college football, maybe it's the NFL. If it's the NFL, maybe it's uh, you know the Major League Baseball's postseason, uh, or maybe it's the NHL. Or you know, or March Madness comes along and sort of takes you away from the end of the NBA season and and maybe the beginning of the baseball season. And so the sports calendar is so layered now that maybe there's not as much pressure on fans to, to stay engaged with a, with a team. I'm kind of wondering, from a Blazers perspective, how much more you can take as a fan. And can you, can you enjoy this at all? And by enjoy, I mean, can you get into the idea that you're watching some young players who are getting minutes, who are maybe or or you know ideally going to be part of the Blazers future out on the field out on the court uh doing what they're supposed to do and growing as players can you be okay with that i know when i watched my giants struggle it was this blend of veteran players who were kind of on their way to retirement and it was some young players that i always got excited about i remember the san francisco giants had a young third baseman by the name of chris brown who came up and uh, for about a month was just like man this guy's going to hit 400 uh, he was on fire. He could. He had he hit with power. He was a guy you could pencil into the lineup, and and uh, pretty soon Chris Brown, later in his career, within a year or two, figured out he's about a two fifty nine hitter, uh, career wise. Uh, is there is there enough there for you as a fan to stay engaged? I guess that's what I'm asking you. Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. Secondarily, Damian Lillard giving an interview. Uh, you know, and he's he's done this in the wake of the All Star break, giving an interview. After, uh, you know, as Milwaukee comes out of the break and wins a couple games, but he gave an interview from Sports Illustrated to Sports Illustrated and to other reporters who happened to be there for the media session in which he said that, you know, he's he's kind of bored in Milwaukee. And he was talking about everything but basketball. He was just saying that he goes home. He watches boxing on TV. He's not around his family, misses his family. And I was a little bit. I guess, put off by Lillard's comments, although we all know that they're out of context. The the question really isn't about Milwaukee and the nightlife in Milwaukee. It's really more about Damian Lillard saying he's at a point in his life where, you know, he's going through a divorce, he's lost his family, he's sort of onto this new family in Milwaukee, he's not going out, he says he just comes home and he watches TV, whatever. And, And a lot of Miami Heat fans are taking that to mean got that Damian Lillard is raising his hand and and saying hey uh, I'm ready to come to Miami now now we all know he wanted to go to Miami where he probably would have been more entertained after hours than he is in Milwaukee I think if you look at Portland and you look at his departure from Portland and he, he made a comment in the interview he says my mom was just down the street his kids were just under the same roof and now he doesn't have any of that but if you look at Portland 
And then you look around the league. I mean, Milwaukee might be one of the few places that you could argue that, you know, maybe there's less going on for an NBA player, a young NBA player, relatively young NBA player, a young professional athlete at least. Um, and Damian Lillard struggling a little bit with kind of the adjustment to a new place. I want to know what you make of that as well. Do you think Lillard's time in Milwaukee will be short? Do you think comments like that and the fact that the Miami fans are all clamoring going, we, we should have had him, he should have been ours, the Blazers should have traded him to us, he wanted to be in Miami, do you think that that at all plays in the background of what we're about to see over the next several weeks and maybe a couple months as the NBA playoffs unfold? 503-417-7575 is the phone number. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to check in with Antoine Staley of the New York Daily News. He is at the NFL Combine. He is going to tell us what's being talked about. Uh, Caleb Williams, of course, some other players. Antoine will join us uh, coming up in Hour 1. John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News will be with us in Hour 2. Tomorrow, Teresa Gold, the new commissioner of the Pac-12, will be introduced. It will be her first official day on the job as the Pac-12 commissioner. She's going to do a news conference in which she'll answer some questions for media via Zoom. And then she's going to join us on tomorrow's show and do an exclusive one-on-one interview. Teresa Gold tomorrow on the show. So uh, get ready for that as the new commissioner will come in. And, of course, the old commissioner, George Klyovkov, on his way out the door tomorrow. And uh, I don't know if we'll hear from Klyovkov. I don't know if he signed a non-disclosure as part of his settlement and leaving. He told me several times in the run-up to the end of the Pac-12 football season, that he had a story to tell. He would sit down with me. We would talk about it. I'm really curious to see if George Klyovkov will surface somewhere in the next couple of weeks and tell that story. I'd love to hear it. All right, let's talk about the Blazers. Is there enough there to keep watching? Steven, this team's lost nine straight. It's going to finish November, November, February without a win. And... You have you, you go back to October, November, and there was a little bit of hope around this team with Scoot Henderson and Shaden Sharp and how are they going to look, and all of that has dissipated. All of that is gone. Is there enough there to hold anybody's interest between now and the end of the season? I think if you're, and I don't mean to say this as a bad thing, but if you're a casual NBA fan or a casual Blazer fan, no, there's really not much to keep your interest except for the fact that the tickets are so low. So you can, if you want to get to a Blazer game for a night out, just have some fun. You can do that, but if you're talking about actual on-the-court stuff, no, there's really not much to be excited about if you're just a casual fan. Now, you know me as a guy who's grown up around here, and I just love the Blazers. I love basketball. Like I'm always going to watch, and it's interesting to, to hear John and see because my son, nine years old, uh, he's you know he's starting to get into basketball, and he starts and he loves it, and and he makes comments to me about, man, the Blazers are really bad, but you know they're the Blazers, so I love them, and it's interesting to hear because like even he recognizes like the team's not very good. But I know I'm supposed to be a fan, so I actually care. But at the same time, he doesn't necessarily care because he knows they're going to lose every time. So I, I feel like if you are just a casual Blazer fan, you're a casual NBA fan, there's really no reason to watch this team. I'll be honest. There's really not. And you know, now that Scoot Henderson's hurt, Shane Sharp is hurt, all the young players seem to be getting hurt, they're not playing well, there's not much to be rooting for. Um, it's disappointing because you were hoping at the start of the year that there would be a lot to build on, but there really hasn't been some disappointing in that factor that you know Joe Cronin kind of sold Scoot Henderson to be the man and he'd be NBA ready and he really wasn't. And now there's nothing to really cheer for the last you know last couple of months of the season. So no, to answer your question, there's nothing there's nothing to root for right now for the Blazers if you're just a casual fan unless you want to get out and have some fun. 
Nine straight losses. 13 of the last 16 they've lost. The month of February uh, becomes an 0-9 endeavor. Started on the road at Denver with a couple of losses. Ended, of course, uh, last night as uh, Miami uh, finished the Blazers 106-96. Uh, the Damian Lillard conversation. Lillard's out talking. Sports Illustrated had a story, did an interview with him. Of course, he's he was asked about kind of what is what is life like in Milwaukee, and he basically uh, said uh, there's nothing going on but the rent, you know. And he's he's got um, he's got a uh, sort of a somber tone to what he's saying and what he's talking about. He's basically saying, um, you know, uh, he goes home after basketball. He doesn't do anything. He watches some boxing. Uh, he sounds bored, but he's also kind of saying, um, you know, it's it's more it's less about the lifestyle and more about the change in his lifestyle. He said, "quote Seriously, I don't have much of a life, but that's what comes with making a big decision." Telling Chris Chris Mannix of Sports Illustrated, there, uh, he says he's happy in Milwaukee. Says it hasn't always been comfortable. He uh, thinks Doc Rivers and this team's on the right track, but of course you're going to say that. But, um, you know, Lillard's been playing well in the last two games, but I also just think um, this is Damian Lillard, who everybody is used to seeing um, happy and upbeat, saying that he has, he sounds a little depressed. He does, and... I don't mean to sound like a jerk, but I don't. I don't feel bad for him. Say it. I, Just I, say yeah, it. I, I mean, feel, you're I, speaking for a lot of people. I think I don't feel bad for the guy. Like the guy is making what fifty million dollars a year. He's making four hundred thousand or so a game to play forty eight minutes of basketball. Like you can't deal with it. You're the one that asked to be out of Portland. You're the one that asked to be traded out of the fan base that absolutely adores you and still does. Like this fan base still loves Damian Lillard, and he's playing for Milwaukee. And he's the one that wanted out. He he had it all in Portland if he wanted it. He was allowed to shoot 35-foot threes. He was allowed to shoot the ball every time he wanted to. He's going to have a, you know, a statue in front of Motor Center because everyone loves him. Now he's in Milwaukee. He has to play in the system. He has to play with other really good players like Giannis where he's not the guy. He's not the main player, and he has to figure out his role. He can't shoot those shots. If you watch the Bucks, John, he doesn't shoot those really deep threes anymore because I'm pretty sure the coaching staff says those aren't good shots, even though he made them in Portland. They're not good shots, and and I will never stop saying that. So, you know, I don't feel bad for him. And now the fact that he you know, he wanted out, he went to Milwaukee. He didn't have a choice of where he wanted, where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to Miami, but you know what? Portland didn't want to trade him there. They didn't get the good enough package. They liked it from Milwaukee. So, so, so why is he saying what he's saying? Because I mean, he says, "Bro, I go to practice. I go home. I watch boxing. I play video games. Man, I type in bop fight hype on YouTube and." Uh, I pray that there's something new on there. Seriously, I don't have much of a life, but that's what comes with making a big boy decision. You got to be down from that and figure it out. Is you know he's going through. You talk about the stresses of life. You know, people can talk about um, a change of job. You can talk about buying a house or moving. You can talk about a divorce or a marriage. You can you can talk about um, having a child. I mean, are, there, are, there are certain events that cause a lot of stress in people's lives. And, and I don't know $50 million a season. You know, I, I can't relate to that. And, and most of the listeners cannot relate to, to, to trying to have a problem amid $50 million salary. Like, you know, he doesn't have real world. He has first world, not even first world problems. He has beyond first world problems. And so I, I, I get that it's not going to play well. But why do you think he's talking so, so candidly about being lonely? I think... 
it goes back to what he wants his image to be, right? When he was in Portland, he was the family man. He was uh, you know, a guy that cared about the community. And now that he is getting divorced, I think that did hurt his image a little bit. And the fact that how it ended up turning out in Portland, the, the mess that it made, it did turn a lot of some Blazer fans off. And it did hurt his image. I think he's trying to get that image back. And it, now it's all about just playing basketball. And you know what? I don't care about going out. And, you know, I also think that is partially maybe he does want out of Milwaukee. Like, I, I've said this since the start, since they made that trade. The fact that the Blazers got a first-round pick from Milwaukee later on is great because there's a scenario where Dame's not there next season or in two seasons or Giannis wants out. And Dame says, you know what? There's no reason to stop him from saying, trade me to Miami this offseason and do it again. Like, there's no way to stop that now, now that he's already done it once. So I do think it's a little bit of both. I think it's his image, but I also think maybe Dame's played it up a little bit where he's saying, you know what? I don't like it here, and if we flame out in the playoffs, I don't want to be here another year. And it's going to be, I mean, if they do flame out, it was going to be Damian Lillard as the issue. He's going to get blamed for it, 100%. Right. No, I don't know anymore, though. I think it was. But I think now that Doc Rivers is on the scene, it gives Dame a little bit of wiggle room. When you know when the finger-pointing starts, he's still going to get his share of the blame. But I think some others are going to look and say there was a coaching issue. They never came together. Doc Rivers you know, never really uh, utilized Dame correctly, and they never figured it out. It's not going to be Giannis. But I think prior to Dame, it was going, you know, prior to Doc Rivers coming on the scene, it was going to be a Damian Lillard issue. I think, you know, I think you're probably right with him talking about his image. He is so image conscious. He is so interested in portraying the right image versus maybe, and so many athletes are. I mean, they're, they now have realized, I think, that they are in control of, uh, how they can be portrayed. But, I just thought it was a little interesting because I don't think it's going to have the intended effect that Lillard uh, wanted. And I think, you know, he probably wanted people to empathize with him, probably wanted people to feel sorry for him, probably wanted people to go, oh, man, you know, I really want to root for Dame here in this situation. He sounds depressed and he sounds like he's battling uh, a little bit of depression. And But I think you're right in that. I don't think people are going to view him through the prism of like normal life. They're going to go, you chose this. You could have stayed in Portland, could have been around your family. You you didn't have to go to Milwaukee. You're the one that asked out. It, to me, if I'm a Milwaukee Buck and I'm his teammate, I don't like what he said. It sounds like he's a terrible teammate right now. Like the fact that you just, you complain about Milwaukee, like you're acting like it's the worst thing ever to be there and you weren't depressed. Now you come to Milwaukee and now you're a little depressed. Like why? You're winning basketball games. You're the one that wanted to be traded. And now, you're not getting along. I, 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 it does. It rubs me the wrong way. And if I'm a, if I'm one of his teammates, it rubs me the wrong way even more that he's coming out and saying these things right now. I don't think there's anything to say with the Blazers to my first question. And 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 tell me if I'm wrong on Twitter at John Canzano BFT. I don't I don't think there's anything left to see when you've spent an entire month without winning a game. Even if you're a diehard fan, bless you if you're still engaged with this team. I, it's not personal. I just. I think the sports calendar is too crowded for people to sit around and go, okay, another loss, another loss, another loss. The drama will pick up again when the ping pong balls start flying. All right, we're going to go to the NFL Combine next. Antoine Staley, friend of this show, New York Daily News NFL columnist, will be with us to talk about the scene at the Combine. Leave it here. Portland Timbers have terminated the club's corporate partnership with DeBella, their biggest sponsor. We'll get to that later in the show. Uh, allegations yesterday of misconduct at that company in a court filing that went public. 
Timbers uh, say that they and a third party conducted a vetting process and uh, the decision was rooted, the team says, in the responsibility that the MLS club has to fans, sponsors, partners, employees, and transparency. We'll get to all that a little bit later in the show. Our next guest is at the NFL Combine, Antoine Staley, frequent guest when he was at the Eugene Register Guard, now at the New York Daily News, joining us. Give us the scene at the Combine. What's that like? Uh, it's a lot of uh, organized chaos, a tons of reporters, both kind of college and pro football colliding. And, you know, it's great for me because obviously I covered both college and NFL for a, variety, for a long time. So this is like uh, a dream for me. Like, I love draft season. It's like it's my favorite time of the year, to be quite honest with you. What are you looking for when you, Antoine, when you go to a, a combine, is it more of the interviews or are you looking for, you know, metrics on players or agents or coaches or all of the above maybe? Uh, yeah, I don't mean, you know, the metrics that I don't necessarily care too much about because I watch a lot of film and watch a lot of college football. It's really trying to get to know the people, whether it be agents or, you know, the players themselves too. I mean, they're out there, they're, they're trying to get their name recognized as well and, you know, getting to know play, like the teams that are interviewing them and things of that nature too. And also the general managers and coaches because they're out there. You try to get a grasp of what they're thinking going into the offseason too as well. But, yeah, I think it's just a combination of a lot of different things that you try to, you know, analyze and get a read on while you're out here. NFL invited 321 prospects to attend, uh, 95 different college programs represented, of course, the headlines, Antoine, uh, came down to Caleb Williams and Jaden Daniels. How did that go over? The news that those guys weren't going to uh, going to uh, throw in and throw in front of scouts. Well, John, you know, as you know, this like the top quarterbacks typically don't necessarily throw at the combine. They usually wait to the pro day because it's more of a controlled environment. They know the receivers, they know the personnel that's going to be there, and it makes them look better as opposed to the NFL combine where. You know, it's going to be less of a control environment for them. You don't necessarily throw at the combine unless you're trying to up your stock. Taylor Williams doesn't need to up his stock. I mean, he's going to be the number one player taken, no matter if it's the Bears or somebody else that comes in and they trade for him. You know, Jaden Daniels, I think he's either two or three, you know, depending on who you ask. Some people think he might go to Washington. Uh, at worst, I think he's going to go to New England. So those guys are pretty much set. But I think everybody else, like, you got a guy like Bo Nitz or a guy like, you know, Michael Pennis Jr. or, you know, J.J. McCarthy, those guys that need to improve their stock so they can continue to climb up the ladder. And, you know, they have a lot to prove, too, as well. As you talk to people, I'm curious what what uh, the perception of Bo Nix is at this point. He obviously has some some work to do in winning over uh, G- GMs and scouts, but what are people saying about Bo Nix at the Combine? I was talking to some people uh, starting at the Senior Bowl and even at the Combine, and you know, I was talking to a person from ESPN, and they could kind of compare him to Jimmy Garoppolo, kind of a little bit more of a mobile Jimmy Garoppolo. And what, whatever you might think, Jimmy Garoppolo has had a nice career. But that seems like to be the uh, compliment to Bo Nitz. I think he, you know, really improved his stock coming into Oregon. And I was there when, you know, he first transferred and had that electric pro, uh, spring practice, you know, there, the spring game. And, you know, I think that really set him off the motion for the next couple of years. You know, just to have, just to, for him to be in the conversation to be potentially drafted in the first round, I think it speaks volumes of just the growth that he's made. But, you know, I don't know. I think him being older, obviously, is a little bit of a red flag for some of the teams there, too, as well. And that might scare 
scare some teams off from taking them in round one. But, you know, I think he could be a bit surprised there in round two, sort of like what you had with, you know, Will Levis last year from Kentucky. And I think the same thing with Michael Pennis Jr. too as well. I think for me, I, I would take him in the first round. But at the same time, I think people have questions about, you know, his medical is going to have to be the big key for him, obviously with the multiple season-ended injuries. And, of course, his age is also a concern. Now, you watch a lot of film. The NFL teams watch a lot of film. They've seen hours and games and hours. They've got so much film on Caleb Williams and Michael Penix. They, they know who they are as football players. So, so what are they looking for in the combine? Are they, are they looking for guys they haven't seen, or are they looking for validation, or what does the combine do for NFL teams? Well, for, for Caleb Williams and, again, Jaden Daniels, I think teams just want to know, get to know the person, like, during the interview. You just want to see if there's somebody that you can that can lead your franchise because you're, you're going to have to – these quarterbacks, you're going to hand the key to your franchise. For guys like J.J. McCarthy, who asked some questions there, Bo Nitz and obviously Michael Pennis Jr., they're a different class where they want to see, one, you know, the intangibles, what they can be able to do in an uncontrolled environment. With Pennis, I think it's been a big question about, you know, can he play without a clean pocket? I think we kind of saw that, you know, come to fruition in the Michigan game where, you know, he struggled and threw a few interceptions. You know, Bo Nitz there, just some of the, you know, intangibles and can he continue to grow, which I think he kind of saw in Oregon as well. But, yeah, I think it depends on the prospect. Uh, one prospect is different than another, but it just depends on the player and, you know, where they're slotted at coming into the combine. Antoine Staley is our guest. New York Daily News covers the NFL and the New York Jets. I got to ask you, what are Jets fans, what do they want in this draft? And, and what do the Jets need to do to get better? Offensive line. That's been the big thing, too, as well. So, yeah, they, they want somebody to uh, protect Aaron Rodgers, who's coming off an Achilles injury, and he's 40 years old. It will be 41 coming into next year, uh, going into next year, too, as well. So they're looking at all different types of offensive linemen, also some skill position players, you know, maybe that can help Garrett Wilson and Brees Hall, too, as well. So I think those are the best two things that they're looking at. I think Fuaga, you know, from Oregon State, somebody that you, you're familiar with, too, as well. I think it would be a great fit for him, especially at right tackle, considering the Jets be both in left right and right tackle. But you can plug him in there, and I think he'll be a starter there for the next 10 or 12 years. But, yeah, they definitely need a ton of offensive line help. They need three starters on the line, which is a lot going into the offseason. Give me an idea on guys like Russell Wilson and Justin Fields and you know where they end up. How does that, in your mind, shape what else is going to happen in the draft? Well, I think that's the dominoes effect, too, especially with Justin Fields. I think that's the top story going into the combine. Everybody wants to know where he's going to go and what the Bears are going to do. I think consensus believes the Bears are going to trade him. Uh, I think they didn't necessarily do anything to dispel that when they spoke on Tuesday. It's just a matter of when they decide to do it. I think they have two weeks to, in order to figure something out simply because, uh, you know, the, the NFL uh, free agency is coming about in two weeks. So teams need to know what they're going to decide to do. So, yeah, I think, you know, as far as Justin Fields, I think Atlanta would be a good option, Pittsburgh there too as well. If you look at Russell Wilson there, it's pretty much, you know, signals like he's going to get cut. So I think Pittsburgh would be a good option for him too as well. So because the Steelers are a good foundation, Mike Tomlin, he continues to find ways to win and get teams to the playoffs. I mean, you look at, you know, a guy like Mason Rudolph, <laughs> and he found a way to win games with him. So, you know, there's no reason to think even with Russell Wilson not being in his prime that he can't do the same thing with him. Antoine Staley, our guest, New York Daily News. We watch a guy like Brock Purdy get taken last, Mr. Irrelevant, and yet he takes a team to a Super Bowl. Does that change or recalibrate 
how any classification of player is viewed. Meaning, you know, do do uh, do NFL GMs suddenly go, well, if you don't get Caleb Williams or Jaden Daniels, maybe you can wait on a quarterback and get a get a good college quarterback who's got some experience. Am I going too far with that, or is that kind of thinking going to infect this draft? No, you're you're not wrong. I think it depends on the team too. It depends on like what are the needs of your team. Like you look at a team like the Houston Texans, where last year a lot of people thought, oh, there's no way that a guy like C.J. Stroud was going to come in and produce and also lead the team to the playoffs. But yeah, we were all wrong, and we didn't feel like they had the infrastructure to do that. But they certainly did, and uh, we we they, uh, we saw what they looked like too. But we also saw a team like the Carolina Panthers with Bryce Young, and they didn't have the infrastructure around them. They lacked raw receivers, they lacked the offensive line, they lacked other skill position players around him, and we saw the you know the effects of that too. So yeah, I think it, you know you shouldn't have to force yourself to take a quarterback. It's okay, like if you're not in love with a guy, you know, take the best available player. It's nothing wrong with if the Patriots decide to take Marvin Harrison Jr., who I think is the best player in the draft and then try to figure out the quarterback situation later, whether it be a stopgap guy or Michael Pennis Jr. in the second round, and just roll with that instead of just trying to make themselves fall in love with a guy maybe like Drake May who has some questions too. But, yeah, I, I think you can wait on the quarterback. It's just a matter of, like, who are you in love with and how much you're uh, invested in the quarterback situation and what your team looks, overall structure looks like. Sometimes you we're going to see drafts that, that have a lot of activity. They have teams at the top who may not have a need – who move back, try to collect extra assets. Do you expect that the top of this draft will stay as is? Are you hearing that there will be movement, that you know some teams may try to move back? What do you think will, will happen between now and the draft? Oh, I think it's going to be some movement, too, as well. I mean, you got a team like the Bears. I mean, they have they can control the draft because they have two first round, uh, two picks in the top ten. So I definitely think it's going to be some movement there with Chicago, uh, whether it be at one or, you know, you look at, you know, also at number nine, too, as well. They can also move back and get uh, players around Caleb Williams or whoever the quarterback is going to be. You know, the Jets, I think you're a candidate to move down to as well. They don't have a second round pick due to the Aaron Rodgers trade last year. So you look at a team like that, the team like that could possibly move up. Maybe the Raiders, you know, they definitely need a quarterback in the worst way. Aiden O'Connor is a good, I think, you know, stop guy, guy, career backup, but they need a, you know, bona fide quarterback. And I don't know if you're not in love with J.J. McCarthy, maybe you decide, yeah, you go put all your chips in and try to get a Jaden Daniels or, you know, a Drake May early in the top three, too, as well. And then the Giants are right there at six, too, which it's kind of an odd situation where they might have a quarterback fall to them, but then again, it's not necessarily guaranteed, too, as well. And there's a lot of questions with Daniel Jones, you know, and his future there. But, yeah, I definitely think you're going to see – Tons of movement, especially in that top 10 to 15 range. And, you know, it's going to be a fun time, especially in a draft that's loaded with talent. Give me an idea. The You know, the Aaron Rodgers injury was unfortunate. I think a lot of people were excited to see how that was going to go for the Jets. And it kind of cast a pall over the whole season. But how does this feel now, Antoine, as you head into season two with a guy who's rehabbed? And, you know, it, it does it have a more settled feeling? Still questions? What's the what's the narrative right now on Aaron Rodgers? On him, it's like it's a lot of unknown because you got a guy that suffered a really major injury at the age that he is, and 
you know, I don't think it's as many questions with him that per se, although you, you wonder about how long he can continue to play at a high level. But I think there's bigger questions with the organization, whether it be head coach Robert Sala and also general manager Doe Douglas. Uh, Woody Johnson, the owner uh, earlier this month at the NFL own, uh, Honors uh, Honors Awards show, like, talked about how he voiced his displeasure and how angry he was about how they finished 7-10 finish once again. And what I've been told just by multiple people, they have to win. They have to make the playoffs, and even that might not be enough to save their job. They have to be able to get far. They put all their chips on the table to try to get and acquire Aaron Rodgers. They got a mulligan last year uh, He after he suffered his Achilles tear four plays into the season opener. They won't get that once again. So they're going to have to fortify some positions there. Otherwise, it could be – wholesale changes, not only with Sala and Douglas, but if they end up changing coaches and general managers, that's probably spells the end of Aaron Rodgers and might end his career, quite frankly. Yeah. It was it was such a weird year, though, and I, I almost feel like it was a lost year for the Jets because the, their entire plan disintegrated on opening night within you know a first series, and, and suddenly it was gone. And what has Sala been like? Because all season long, the, the shots of him on the sideline, he didn't look happy. He, you know, he looked disgusted at other times. It wasn't going how he thought it was going to go. It must have felt like a really long, long year for him. A bad dream. It felt like a bad dream. This four plays in. I don't know if you saw his face as soon as Aaron went down. He's like, yeah. oh crap! Like I, this is exactly like this is not what I had in mind because they they expected the Aaron Rodgers to play the entire year. Like for them, it was kind of like. Zach Wilson would take a back seat. He would be redshirted. He wouldn't play, and Aaron Rodgers would get all the snaps. And, you know, four plays in, oh, well, Zach Wilson, you're the starter once again. And, you know, it became the same thing like it was in 2022 where they had a great defense. The offense uh, struggled, and they had no plan uh, whatsoever. So, Sala, I mean, I think he knows, I, I think he knows, like, what it is now. Like, they know the pressure is on, and they have to win, and they have to win. You have to make the playoffs, and – but they're going to have to have some kind of plan in order to make that happen. Last year, they just put all their eggs in the Aaron Rodgers basket. They cannot do that once again. They're going to have to find some kind of plan just in case. A 40-year-old quarterback, which 40-year-old players tend to get hurt in sports, no matter where you're covering them, unless you're LeBron James, who's pretty much indestructible. Uh, but, yeah, you're going to have to find a way to you know, overcome that because other teams around the league have been able to overcome injuries. Why can't the Jets do the same thing? What happens to Zach Wilson? They always trade. Like they've already said that they've given his agent permission to seek a trade. I expect that to happen uh, possibly in the next couple of weeks too, as well. I don't know what they might get for him. Maybe a seventh round pick too, uh, a seventh round pick. If they can't get anything for him, then I think they'll flat out release him after last season. And his, he voiced his displeasure, even trying to. He didn't want to come back and um, become the starter once again late in the year. It was no way he was going to return. I think a trade by both sides would be the best for, best for Zach Wilson. Now, the NFL Players Association released the uh, findings in their player survey about working conditions and, you know, how how the teams treat families. And, um, you know, it's it's a little all over the place. Um, you know, the Dolphins have the best working conditions. The commanders are last. I was a little surprised at what the the players of the Chiefs had to say. But what jumped out to you, Antoine, as you as you saw the results of that survey? Yeah, I mean the Chiefs owner, like you know, the the Hunt family got an L. Like, yeah, I was I was shocked by that so because they've had the success uh, recently too. And also, you know, you look at the Chiefs, you know, in the locker room, the locker rooms also got an L too. The dietitians got an L. So the Chiefs might be champions in a lot of different ways, but it goes to show you, like, even the best teams uh, can overcome bad working conditions, and that's what Kansas City does. It, it, it wakes it's wonders that. 
you know, you have a great quarterback like Patrick Mahomes and a tremendous coach in Andy Reid, and then, you know, people kind of, you know, forget about some of the bad things that go around in your organization, but it happens. But yeah, I was definitely shocked at some of the grades, especially, you know, that one stuck out to me the most, especially with the ownership, because I would think, you know, the Hunt family has been, you know, a pioneer family. They met to the AFL days, but yet they, get, they got an F. Yeah, and I looked at that. It jumped out at me, and then I saw – you know, it's been a long-running debate on this show. Like, I say you have to have good ownership, good leadership. Is it possible that a great coach and a great quarterback overcome bad ownership? And, and how do you, you know, is does that give Jets fans hope? Yes, I think so, too. I mean, even if you look at team like, I know Cincinnati kind of struggled this year, especially with Joe Burrow and the injuries. But, you know, you look at traditionally the last few years, I mean, they've had you know, good teams as well. And, you know, the Brown family isn't exactly the model of, uh, you know, as far as ownership there too as well. But, and then you even look at the team like the Steelers. Like the Steelers didn't necessarily get good grades either, but, you know, I think people tend to believe they have good ownership too as well. But if you're able to have a great coach and, you know, a great quarterback, then none of this really matters. It's like I think Bill Parcells said it's like the ultimate – winning is the ultimate deodorant. So, yeah, as long uh-huh. as you're winning, I don't think necessarily people will uh, care about, you know, what goes on in, you know, the locker room or the, what they're eating. You know, they just care about, you know, wins and losses, especially with ticket prices continue to rise and then the amount of money the NFL teams are making these days. All right, I got two more questions. One, selfishly, 49ers window to compete. Can they get back? Can they get another shot? to win a Super Bowl in this era? Absolutely. Absolutely. As long as Kyle Shanahan is the coach, then, you know, they're going to have – their window is wide open. I mean, he's a, you know, offensive genius. I just think he needs to continue to, you know, work on his, you know, game management skills a little bit. I also think about the Buffalo Bills. So much talk about, hey, it was their last chance. If they weren't going to get by the Chiefs this year, they're never going to get by them. And yet, um, I think Buffalo Bills fans are saying, just wait till next year. Um, How – how close or far away is Buffalo, and do they have to blow it up and, and and make some changes, or can they run the same thing back out there next season? I don't think they have to blow it up. I think as long as they have Josh Allen, their window is there. However, they're going to have to – they need to get some skill, better skills for this and players around it. You can't allow Josh Allen to be Superman. And I think we've seen that throughout the course of whether you talk about the playoffs or in regular season games where he'll play hero ball and just throw up, you know, ridiculous passes. And I think that's kind of why you saw when the change was made to Joe Brady, they went relied a lot more on James Cook in the running game. And I think they need to continue to do that. And also get a compliment to Stephon Diggs, too, as well. And, you know, I, I was talking to a Bills reporter today, and I thought Troy Franklin, you know, from Oregon would be a great, you know, compliment to them. Uh, somebody that's a burner. We obviously know Josh Allen has a cannon of an arm. And they also need more playmakers, too. They had Dalton Kincaid, who I think is going to be a stud, too, as well, Dawson Knox. You know, just continue to add more and more weapons. And I think, you know, they, they had a, they played a really good game against Kansas City. It was just unfortunate that they weren't able to get the job done. And who knows what would have happened if, you know, if the field goal, that, you know, if they made the field goal in the game would have been an overtime. So I don't think they're far off, too. I think as long as Josh Allen is there, their window is going to continue to be uh, wide open, but they have to continue to improve as well. Best 40 time among media members. <laughs> well, I know it's not me, but I can get people in the big press. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Stay there. Antoine, I appreciate you giving us your time, man. Good to hear your voice. All right. Nice to hear you, too, John. Thank you. All right. Take care. Antoine Staley. There he goes. New York Daily News. Uh, it should make the media members run 40s. Why not? They made Tom Brady do it. Leave it here. Our big splash is coming up. Well, the Portland Timbers 
and ownership of the Timbers got themselves in a pickle in recent months slash years with their handling of, uh, first of all, the head coach of the Portland Thorns uh, abusing and harassing his players. Uh, Cover-up of that also cost them. Also subsequently mishandling complaints and subsequently uh, looking bad and uh, showing poor form as it pertained to a player on the roster who had in uh, an altercation, uh, a domestic violence-related altercation. Well, the Timbers, are they, have they learned? It is the subject of our big splash. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash! Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger, and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, Tabella was the Portland Timbers' newest jersey sponsor, and they had their logo on the jersey for one game before the Timbers dropped them. After learning about some allegations, DeBella is a home improvement contractor in Hillsborough. It's the team's newest jersey sponsor. A, a former executive has accused the CEO of DeBella, Donnie McMillan Jr., of unwanted advances and sexual harassment of at least three female employees. KGW had the story today. Stu- a statement by the team, the Timbers learned of the misconduct allegations through a court filing. Timbers uh, learned about it on Tuesday. Decision, the team says, was rooted in responsibility. Responsibility that they have to their fans, supporters, and partners. Um, This is uh, uh, yet another round of misconduct allegations that are associated with the organization. Remember, the club fired the former president of soccer and the president of business. That came on the heels of the release of a report detailing an uh, investigation into the Uh, Women's National Soccer League by former uh, U.S. Attorney Sally Yates and some team lawyers. Paul Riley basically was a creep, and the Timbers didn't do enough about it. The Timbers uh, trying to do the right thing here and getting rid of their jersey sponsor. This would be small news, or not news at all, for most organizations. But for the Timbers, it becomes the big splash. And that's the one thing you need to know. Uh, what was your reaction when you saw that, Stephen? You saw that news. Debella out after one game. Yeah, uh, a little shocking there because, like you said, one game and uh, you know one and zero though. You know, maybe go down as the best record of all time with a uh, jersey sponsor, but it was shocking, and it it just goes to show, what, like, what are the Timbers doing? Like, out of all the teams, especially in this area, that needed to play it safe with the jersey sponsor, it yeah. was the Timbers. And just going back and digging through some of the information. Like you can find out, you know, the woman's name that was supposedly, you know, one of the, uh, the the women that he was sleeping with, or you know, so allegedly, like her stuff that she has going on. Now she's uh, in prison as she's been charged with trying to murder a couple of police officers in Gladstone, Oregon. Like this came out years ago, and she, you know, she was part of Debella. I, I don't understand how the Timbers can go through and not 
find out this information if I can find it out in five minutes after reading an article. Like, doesn't yeah, it doesn't sound. It sounds like they need to hire a journalist or they need to hire somebody that knows how to use use Google. Yeah, just do your due diligence, and especially the Timbers with all the problems that they've had. Like, you're the one organization that has to do your due diligence on this stuff. Even when they hired hired the new coach, Phil Neville, like he's had yeah, stuff it's terrible. In, it's tone deaf. Yeah, he's yeah. had stuff in his past. So like. What are they doing? Like, what is going on over there that they're not paying attention to what's going on in the world? Yeah, and I think, I think that that's the most disappointing part of it is, like, people want to forgive. The fans want to forgive the franchise. Fans want to believe that the franchise made a mistake and has learned from it and and can move forward. And, and fans want to know and believe that they can trust the organization. So in order to build trust, you have to be very intentional with your actions and you have to be airtight you can't you have to be impeccable to rebuild trust and so the the timbers organization they they what do they do they go out and they hire a coach who's made a bunch of stupid comments on social media and you know i know the timbers reached out to me they wanted to get the coach on the show and i'm like it ain't gonna be the kind of interview you want me to do like and 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 in the end that becomes a negative for them and so i think um i think that you know they they bring the coach out and the coach is saying judge me on my uh, my my movements going forward but he doesn't even understand what has happened here he does not understand the the severity and the breach of trust that the Paul Riley situation with the Thorns caused with the fan base it was you know it was just uh, it was really bad like and and it's a great example of an organization that could have very easily just done the right thing and it would have been embarrassing to them it would have damaged their reputation just a little bit to say hey we have a coach in paul riley who is abusive he has uh you know been uh been uh you know charged with misconduct and we have separated from him because this is not what we're about it would have been a small blip and and fans would have gone oh that's really nice i can trust that organization but instead they they uh, they release him like they're just parting ways with him and they wish him the best in a news release, and then subsequently when all this stuff starts to leak out, it's like cover up, cover up, backpedal, cover up, cover up, backpedal. Then they sign a jersey sponsor who's got issues that they probably should have found out about. It's disappointing to say the least. Leave it here. Well, every year the Associated Press sports editors pour over the work with their judges of the prior year they read everybody they're looking for the best columnist the best beat reporter the best investigative the best projects enterprise feature writing our next guest is one of the top 10 in the Associated Press sports editors national beat writing category John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News. Proud to call him my friend. Joining us now on the hotline. Congrats, man. That news just out. I think I broke that news. You did. You did. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And your listeners probably ought to know that their host was a multiple-time winner as well. So congratulations to you as well. uh, One of the the pieces that, that, uh, that is in the top ten that I wrote, is a short feature about my seven-year-old daughter learning to ride a bike. And uh, I, it was one of the most fun columns that I, I had a chance to write in the last year. And I got to be honest with you, 
I showed her the uh, thing. I said, look, you made top 10. She got a big smile on her face. So that that made it for me. Uh, you know, learning her. She learned to ride a bike. I wrote about it, and uh, I guess some people liked it. So thank you, my friend. Um, big, big honor for you. Um, and you've done a hell of a job. You are tireless. I don't know how you do it. Last week, you're with your daughter touring colleges while interviewing sources and writing stories. How does that work for you? Uh, it didn't work very smoothly, but you know, the, the, I had put in a request to interview Washington state president, Kirk Schultz, uh, about the college football playoff and other issues related to the PAC 12 early to mid January. And finally I was told that he can talk to you on this day. It so happened to be a day that we were driving around Southern California, looking at colleges uh, so I, but I was able to carve out a few minutes for him and, you know, it was certainly informative. There's a lot going on for Washington state and Oregon state in terms of plotting their future. Uh, last week was a huge week for the playoff, right? I mean, they, they finalized the, the five, seven format with his vote, Schultz's vote. And they also discussed what the thing is going to look like in the future. And it's going to be, it's going to change in two years. It, it's pretty clear to me that it's going to go to 14 in two in two years it's crazy how nervous or anxious is schultz right now for oregon state and washington state in the in the playoff structure that goes beyond the next two years no i mean i think they're very nervous starting with the 26th season and right the, the playoff is set for the next two seasons uh with 12 teams washington state and oregon state would qualify as at large teams not as conference champions uh, and then starting in 26, there is no playoff. There's no media deal. There's no format. There's no governing structure. There's nothing. They're starting from scratch. And the SEC and the Big Ten are basically going to get whatever they want. They want a 14-team playoff. They want a bunch of automatic bids. And I think if you're Washington State and Oregon State, you're nervous. If you're a team in the Mountain West with a group of five, you're nervous. And frankly... If you're in the ACC or Big, Ten, Big 12, you're a little nervous because the SEC and the Big 10 have all the big brands and they're going to get what they want. I, I keep thinking about that. And, you know, Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, and, you know, the Big 10, Tony Petiti, they, they've got, you know, most of the big brands in college football and they've got a lot of influence and power. What do they want? Do they want it all or – are they willing to ha you know create a structure that resembles the NCAA tournament and invites all comers? Well, they can't. I don't think that they can take everything because then they would be subject to some kind of antitrust lawsuit, right? Uh, un unless they literally wanted to form their own playoff, two-conference playoff, which I don't think that serves anybody, and I don't think they want to do that. But – they, they've got to create access for the other leagues. Otherwise, it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, collusion. But they can still take the majority. The latest uh, proposal that Yahoo reported this afternoon is that the Big Ten and the SEC would each have three automatic spots in a 14-team playoff. The Big 12 and ACC would have two each. There would also be three at-large bids, and if you assume that those three at-large bids are going to the Big Ten and the SEC, then they would have 
nine of the 14 spots between those two conferences. And that's probably about as much as they can flex their muscle in a 14-team uh, event. But still, that's not, nine out of 14. They are dominating the event, and they're going to dominate college sports. I mean, I don't think a lot of fans realize, you know, just how much influence those two leagues are going to have over the rest of major college football. It's 34 schools in those two leagues. There's 130 in major college football, and those 34 have a huge huge sway over everything else all right give me an idea because in your piece today you know kurt schultz is basically saying let's see how this unfolds because you have one group of managers from the for the college football playoff that consists of presidents and chancellors of the universities then you have another group that is the conference commissioners and it seems like the conference commissioners get a lot of things done and then just turn to the presidents and chancellors and say hey rubber stamp this for us and that, and I'm a little worried that that ends up not good for the rest of college football. Right. Well, and Schultz is concerned about that too. And, and he made it pretty clear to me, and I think he's made it clear in their meetings, that he thinks that the, the presidents need to be more involved and not get, you know, kind of hit with these radical proposals that have been worked out by the commissioners. And all of a sudden it's just in front of the presidents for approval without a, a more thorough vetting process. So I think I think that's part of it for sure. Uh, but, you know, he he's got a lot going on uh, and everybody has got to be worried if you're not in the SEC or, or Big Ten. And I think part of part of what Schultz feels like is realignment is not done. Washington State and Oregon State, they're still hoping maybe they can get in the Big 12 eventually uh, or the ACC implodes. Uh, which I think is there's a chance of that happening with the Florida State lawsuit. The ACC implodes. That could set off a whole new round of realignment. Maybe Stanford and Cal uh, end up coming back out west. Maybe there's some giant conference that's formed. You, nobody knows, but Washington State and Oregon State are trying to remain flexible in case the unexpected happens. Two years to rebuild the conference to eight teams and keep their status as a conference. There, there seems to be a ticking clock here, Wilner. And how long can Oregon State, and Washington State, be patient and look, or do they have to kind of go down the path of rebuilding while also preparing for uh, that implosion you talk about? I mean, I think they are building the plane while they are flying it in a lot of in a lot of ways, right? I mean, they're staying flexible in case there's more realignment, but they also have got to be planning for some kind of expansion. Now, when do they have to decide on expansion? You know, that's a, I don't know that there's a, a set answer on that because it depends on what they do, right? They've got to worry about exit, exit fees for Mountain West schools unless the Mountain West dissolves, right? I mean, and that's, a, that's certainly a possibility. If there's nine Mountain West schools that vote to dissolve to join the Pac-12, there's no exit fees. So that would change the timeline. If there are exit fees, then you've got the 12- and 24-month windows that, that affect the, the amount. So I, I kind of get the sense that, you know, by the late spring, they're probably going to have a pretty good idea of what they want to do with the Pac-12 rebuild, but they still would kind of be waiting around to see what happens to the ACC. John Wilner with us, San Jose Mercury News. Uh, the... Uh... The, the war chest, $255 million, settlement in principle reached in December. 
you recently reported that that isn't finalized yet. Should people be concerned, or is that just dotting I's crossing T's? Well, Schultz told me that they had not finalized, the, the attorneys had not finalized everything. I think they have agreed in principle to the big pieces, but some of the details are still being worked out. And you've got, right, I mean, this is affecting uh, 12 different schools, uh, what, six states. You know, it's, uh, it, it's a, from a legal standpoint, it's very complicated. To me, I asked him specifically about the liabilities. For instance, Who's paying George Kliakoff's buyout, which is probably, what, about $8 million? Is that being split 12 ways? Who's, who's paying uh, the Holiday Bowl's got like a $3 million lawsuit against the Pac-12? Who's paying that? Uh, there's a wrongful termination lawsuit filed by the former Pac-12 Network's employees. Who's paying that? And he said that that's kind of all being worked out. The liabilities piece is being worked out, and that's, I think, kind of the holding up the the dotting the uh, I's and crossing of the T's. Wilner, a new commissioner will be introduced formally tomorrow in a news conference. You'll be on that call. I'll be on that call. Um, Teresa Gold, you've talked to her. You know who she is. What, what does she need to do tomorrow in that, in that media appearance? And what, what job will she have in the short term? What's it, what are the important things for her? I mean, it's kind of one of the strangest ever right i mean she's taking over a conference that is greatly depleted that may not exist in a couple of years i mean they know that everybody's looking at this kind of with, with some skepticism right that's not to diminish her qualifications she's very qualified uh but it's just such a weird deal like what can she do with the press i mean she could she could certainly show that without revealing too much, like that there's a, a plan in place to try to do what's best for the, the athletes in the, in the winter and spring sports for the final five months of the conference existence, uh, that, that she's working to her best uh, capability to help Washington State and Oregon State navigate their future. Uh, but, you know, there's, it's very – it's just weird. I mean, there's never been anything like it. She's the first female commissioner of the Power Conference. But, you know, the Pac-12, how long is it going to be a power conference, right? It's just – and it's unfortunate in that she's very qualified. And she could have been – she would have done a better job as commissioner than the guy who's leaving tomorrow. Yeah, George Klyovkov will leave tomorrow. And, um, you know, I I don't expect that we're going to hear much from him. I'm sure there was an NDA involved in his his, uh, departure. But, uh, you know, what do you make of Klyovkov's – tenure i guess as we look back at his time as the commissioner his his actions biggest mistake that george klyovkov made oh boy i mean there's so many uh and they all involve one thing right i mean they all involve keeping the conference together he was hard that was his only job keep the conference together sign a media deal keep the conference together and he failed that was it he, he failed in his one task uh and now, it's not all his fault, right? The president's played a huge role. He inherited a tough situation from Larry Scott. But he still made a bunch of mistakes. Uh, it's hard for me to pinpoint just one. You could say, oh, he needed to k- keep USC and UCLA uh, in the conference. To me, that's a lot easier said than done. When the Big Ten comes after those schools with promises of $70 bucks a year, 
a year per school, it's going to be hard to keep them, right? There's no way the Pac-12 could have met that money. So, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, hiring the eight, the uh, media advisor he did, Doug Perlman, kind of a boutique shop instead of getting a, a big gun in the media world that would have some leverage with your, your network partners, uh, not managing the, the presidents properly. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things. Uh, but I would say the biggest to me is he just never seemed to understand the urgency. He never seemed to understand the need for relationships. And college sports is built on relationships. And he didn't, he never got that. And he never got how he had to hustle. And he just, he just, the lack of urgency, I thought, doomed the conference. George Klyovkov, uh exits, Teresa Gold takes over. I, I keep thinking about Oregon State and Washington State. They they are not traditionally great at branding themselves, and yet they have more eyes on them right now than maybe ever in their history. Is there anything they can do as athletic departments right now to be, you know, this is this is something they control. They control like realignment was out of their control, but they can control their brands. Wilner, can is there anything they can do, or or do they need to be more aggressive as it pertains to? Um, their own brand and this time? I mean, the Cougars are doing a good job with hoops, right? I mean, if they get in the NCAA tournament, that will certainly help. Uh, Oregon State's men's basketball situation is so bad that I, I don't know that you can, you know, you cannot put lipstick on the pig, right, to a certain degree. But the biggest thing to me is, you know, they got to win next football season as much as they can. I don't know. I think there's a ceiling on how much they can do, right? They're going to sign a media deal to get their home games on TV. It's not going to be for that much money, but they should make sure they maximize exposure, you know, so that they've got games, uh, I don't know about ESPN, but certainly like Fox or CBS and not, not on a streaming service. But winning in football to me is the biggest thing they can do. And we'll, you know, we'll see how each team performs next season they've got some good games some good opponents so that won't be there won't be a real credibility issue but they got to win and if they can win that would help them maximize the opportunity yeah you mentioned you hit on something with you know they're going to sell their media rights oregon state has seven home football games washington state has six washington state plays texas tech on september 7th uh the beavers play oregon in a non-conference game those games probably they could sell to a uh, you know, to a carrier who's going to get them a little more exposure. But what do they value? Is it is it more about revenue for for Oregon State, Washington State, or is it more about staying visible next football season? I think it should be about visibility. That to me, the biggest problem for them is that people forget about them. Not that they get, say, let's say they got a deal where it could be, uh, you know, Fox or CBS, and it's. Uh, a million bucks a game or, and I'm just pulling these numbers out, you know, top of my head, or they could be on streaming for 2 million a game. To me, it's well worth it to, to have the exposure and, and just kind of give up on that extra cash. They've got enough cash with the, the settlement with the PAC 12 to, you know, fund their operations for a while. They're not dependent upon every single dime from a media deal. They are dependent on being relevant and, that, you know, that is the key to whatever happens next for them starting in 2026. They need to be relevant for the next two years in this kind of bridge period for them. So I would I would pass on a little bit extra money 
if it meant I could get on linear TV. I got a text from our old friend Oliver Luck today. He says, I just came across a quote, and it describes very well the situation in college sports. Quote, the old is dying, but the new is not yet born. In the interim, a whole variety of morbid symptoms are emerging. I'm worried about college athletics. It has the ship sailed, Wilner? Oh boy. No, I don't think the ship has sailed. I mean, you know, you can look at TV ratings for the last season and you see how popular college football is, but there's a lot of problems. There's no doubt about the the problems and and the problems that will impact, you know, the athletes and the fans. Uh I just it's going to take a while to get through this. And the, the thing that they can't do that is the thing they're probably going to do is try to piecemeal everything together, right, and, and deal with one problem and then another problem and then another. they got to come up with a big solution to get everything solved sooner than later. To me, it all comes down to the fact that the, you know, they're going to have to pay the players, whether the courts tell them to or they decide on their own. They're going to have to pay the players. And the quicker they get their arms wrapped around that and agree to do it, the better for the industry. And we'll also see if there's some schools that decide they don't want to do that, that they're out, basically. Like, is Stanford going to pay players? Is Duke and Cal and Vanderbilt? I don't know how those schools are going to come down. But to me, that they've got to just they – they can't just try to get a Band-Aid on here and there. They've got to, they've got to deal with the big issues. John Wilner. I appreciate you. Congrats on the APSE honor. You deserve it. You work your butt off. Appreciate you, man. Same to you, my friend. Thank you very much. There he goes. John Wilner, San Jose Mercury News. Coming up, Anna pops into the studio. Five at five, top of the hour. Whole bunch ahead, plus punch it audio. Leave it here. Love that talk with John Wilner, Bay Area News Group. Associated Press Sports Editor Award winner, John Wilner. Top ten in national beat reporting he uh he mentioned that johnconzano.com got honored in uh, a couple of categories and anna has popped into the studio and i want to talk about one of those stories in particular that uh won a tep- top 10 honor can i do that yeah can i think I do so it? all right so um i'm a columnist i'm a sports columnist and so the category that i pay attention to is columns generally because you know it gives me you know, kind of a, a barometer of where I am and uh, and what judges in journalism, sports journalism nationally, think of the work. Mm-hmm. And so it was cool to see johnconzano.com pop up in the column category, okay? But yeah. I've been in the column category before, mm-hmm. okay? And so the category I was paying attention to and – I kept glancing at as I saw somebody sent me the results and said, hey, the APSC stuff's out. And I opened it and I went to short features first Mm -hmm. because I had entered a column that I wrote about our seven-year-old daughter in short features. And it was very different. It didn't fit the normal sports criteria for a column. In fact, it was not really about sports at all. And so I kind of wondered if the judges would be like, what the hell is this doing in here? (laughs) This is not a feature story about an athlete. Because when you look in the um, top ten of the feature stories, they're about, you know, women's college basketball players Mm -hmm. and professional baseball players. And uh, one was on a fan, who a Clemson fan, who gets on the field and 
seems to get in the background of the camera shots all the time. And <laughs> so it's about people. Mm-hmm. Well, you were in Taiwan last year. Okay. Yeah. You went to Taiwan to go see your dad because mm-hmm. your uh, stepmom died. Your dad wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. So you went to go see him in Taiwan and you left me home alone with these monsters. <laughs> And so one of the, our little baby angels. One of the things that happens <laughs> is the seven-year-old says to me, and I've been waiting for her to say this to me for months. She says, "Dad, can you take the training wheels off the bike?" Mm-hmm. And so I got up in the cul-de-sac with her and her older sister, and we did the thing where I run along behind the bike, holding the back of the bike, and she pedals. And pretty soon, what's happening is she's pedaling. And there's that magical moment, and parents, you know this, that magical moment where your kid is pedaling and you've let go of the bike and they don't know it. And then they realize they're pedaling without you. This, this, it only happens once in every lifetime. It's magic. And I've enjoyed it with uh, the older daughter and the middle daughter. And so I was waiting for the younger one in that moment. And it happened when you were in Taiwan. And she, uh, we got it on video. I put it on Instagram. So if you want to see it, you can go to my Instagram. You can watch the actual video of the first time that she is pedaling without me. Her nine-year-old sister is recording. And she's going, Dad, you know, am I doing it by myself? Am I doing it by myself? And I go, yeah, this is all you. And there's just this magical moment. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. And so she's pedaling around the cul-de-sac, and she's got a big smile on her face. Well, that evening... You're in another country. Yeah. We send you the video. I couldn't be further away. Yeah. And uh, she was so excited to share that. She also lost her first tooth, I think. Yeah, a lot <laughs> happened. A lot happened in that week. I was she gone. learned how to read. <laughs> she lost her first tooth. <laughs> got into her first college. Yeah, got her first fist fight Early in the neighborhood. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that night, I sat down and I just started writing, writing about it. And mm-hmm. I wasn't really writing for anybody, but like I was just writing. And... I ended up publishing that piece, and then when it came time at the end of the year, we have you know I have editors that I consult with and stuff, and Jeff Wooler is one of those editors, longtime editor at the Oregon Journal and the Oregonian, and I sort of you know he sort of keeps track during the year, and he's like you know that he goes that column on you writing writing about your daughter, you got you got to find a way to enter that somewhere, <laughs> and so we entered it as a short feature story mm-hmm. against. Like feature stories about Don Staley and feature stories about ba- professional baseball players, Shohei Otani. And, you know, so here's this column about a seven year old girl, a passage, right? And it's, mm-hmm. it really spoke more about all the crap that's going on in the sports world and the lawsuits and the implosion of college athletics. And amid that, here comes a seven dad running behind her trying to hold the back of her seat until he realizes she's pedaling through childhood and pedaling away from her. And so, when the APSC uh, awards came out, I scrolled to the short feature category, not not really <laughs> expecting to see it, and right. there it was, top ten, and I could not wait to show her. <laughs> and so I showed her. I said, "Look what happened," and she she was like, my, "I go no, <laughs> click on it, click on it, see what it was." She clicked on it, and you saw her face. Mm-hmm. She was so proud. It was almost like she'd ridden the bike again. But that that was magic for me. That to me is the thing I wrote in the last year. Really? Yeah, because it's just, it's real, and I think it's relatable, and I think people who are reading me at johnconzano.com know I'm having more fun than ever, 
And um, I just, it was one of those things that I probably couldn't have written in, in a newspaper. I would have had an editor going, this has nothing to do with sports. <laughs> and yet all of these editors nationally who are judging this contest are like, oh, I like that one. And I just think it's different. You know, it was a lot of fun for me. It's different because, I mean, it's more than just about a little girl learning how to ride her bike. I mean, it's tangentially connected to sports. And obviously the symbolism is, you know, as a parent, you want to, you can't ride the bike for her, right? You can run alongside your kid. You can support them. You can give them the foundation. But then in the end, your hope as a parent is that they go off and they learn to do it for themselves and for us Anna, i gotta be honest you do so much for these girls who are their rock right and you're you're with them after school you're taking them on hikes i'm working you're working on them you're like doing this important work with them and pouring yourself into them yesterday where were you you were in front of the grocery store selling girl scout cookies (laughs) like a crack dealer on the corner with these two little girls and and uh you know they sold like how many boxes they sold 96 boxes altogether <laughs> in two hours. Their hands were frozen, though. Yeah, Are it they... was not a warm day yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but you're pouring into them, pouring into them. And so for me, to have that moment with the seven-year-old, that was big for me. Because it, it, you know, it's, a, it's the ultimate trust when your seven-year-old daughter is looking at you going, do you believe that I can do this? Mm-hmm. She's checking. She's eyeballing you like she's Larry David, trying to see if you're telling the truth. <laughs> yes. She's looking at me like, you know, you know, are you sure I can do this? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you can do this. I never thought about it that way. You're right. Because the kid is trying to see themselves through your eyes, right? The kid's going, do you believe in me? Like, do you actually think I can ride this bike on my own? Yeah. And I- that, that's a strong affirmation from your dad. To say to you, yeah, it's seven. Yeah, you can totally do this. I'm going to help you. I'm going to get you going on those first few pedals, but you can totally do this. I got several text messages after that column from like Pac-12 head football coaches who read mm. it and said, good for you. Dan Lanning was one of them. He was like, good dad. That's all he texted me. Good dad. And I just, I think it's very relatable. And for people who um, have done this years and years ago, you know what I'm talking about. And for people who haven't, you know. Uh, you'll get there, and you're going to understand one day. Judah Newby, you be, you're going to best be nodding your head. You've got a little daughter who you're going to you're going to be running right behind her bike. Stephen, you've done it, and and the awards, like to me, like I got to know. Um, Blazers president Dwayne Haken sent me a text saying, "Hey, congrats on that. You know, you're in there three times, and 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 that's cool." But to me, and you know this, Anna, there are no awards on the walls in this house. Like they're all in boxes yeah. and in the garage or. Because to me, like the big the big realization for me came years and years ago, because as a writer, you come up in a world that has Bill Plachke and Sally Jenkins and Mitch Album and like Bill Roden and Tony Kornheiser. And, you know, there's just their murderous row. (laughs) And for me, the big one for me was like in 2006, 2007, 2008 years ago, I was entered in these contests. I kept I came in second to Bill Plachke. Mm-hmm. And I looked at the names that were around me and I was like, these are all like stars. Mm-hmm. And then the next year I came in second again to Bill Plachke. And I remember mm-hmm. sending him a bottle of Dom. It was the final four or the NBA finals when it came out. And we were in, we were in San Antonio. So it must've been a final four in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And I sent him a bottle of champagne to his hotel room. And I don't Classy. know if you remember this, 
he had, uh, and I congratulated him, and I put a note in there, and I said, you know, uh, uh, congrats, but I'm really just trying to kill some brain cells so I can beat you one of these years. <laughs> but his girlfriend, apparently he told me later, he had a girlfriend at the time who was back in the room. Yeah. She got the bottle of Dom. And when he got back to the room, she was drunk and the bottle was empty. <laughs> and so he, he never got to drink it. But the n- very next year, uh, I think it was 2008 or 2009, I broke through and I won. You remember, we we flew to... Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And to be clear, like, I'm your wife, so I can kind of brag on this. What you won was the, you know, sports editors across the country declaring that you were the best sports writer in the whole country. Am I right? Am I saying that right? That was right? sports columnist. Yeah, sports yeah. columnist. Like, like you were the top sports columnist in the whole and country. And it was the large circulation category. So it was yeah. like, you know, here I am with, you know, Dan Wetzel. And and Bill Platchkey and Sally Jenkins and Mitch Album mm-hmm. and that's the thing that blew me away. And so, but we go to Pittsburgh, and Stephen A. Smith was the uh, keynote speaker at the convention. That's right. And <laughs> we're there to pick up the award. I forgot about. That. And I'd never gone before, but the newspaper was like, "You need to go pick this up. Like nobody's ever won this. Yeah. And go go to Pittsburgh. Go do it. And." It was uh, it was a lot of nostalgia for me because you know suburban Pennsylvania is where my grandparents settled after immigrating from Italy, and we went back to their small town on that trip and kind of looked at their na- old neighborhood and saw, gosh, how humble their beginnings it was. This radio studio was bigger than their house. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it was uh, just really kind of an interesting trip, and I'll never forget like you know being at that banquet table and that just room full like the Boston Globe's there, the Washington Post is there. And they announced your name, and they called me Joe Costanza. And then I was, and then you're yelling at the back, Canzano. And uh, and then I go up to get the award, and I look down at it, and it actually says Joe Canzano on the award. They misspelled your. And I thought to myself, just when you thought you made it, God says to you, Nah. You are you are you're nothing. Like, here's, a, you know? here's a dose of humble pie. Oh, I was feeling proud of myself, you know. Yeah. Stephen A. Smith's like, hey, congrats, man. This is awesome. Boston Globe uh, sports editors, like, you know, hey, this is good for go, you. Way to go, Joe. Way to go, <laughs> Joe. Way to and go. so uh, they they were embarrassed. They were like, oh my gosh, we, we'll get you a corrected version. And I was like, you know what? No. Yeah. I would like to keep the Joe one. So they said, we're going to send you one anyway. I said, no, I'm going to keep the Joe one yeah. because that's a good reminder. Mm-hmm. And, it, and really, it is a good reminder. Like, it, it's, the awards are not why you do it. And there are a lot of professions where they don't hand out awards. Right. And, and so it's kind of silly to me that they do this still. But I also um, I pay attention to it because I see the work of so many good people that are talented who are honored every year. And, and made part of this contest. And it's neat to see some independent writers like myself, Christian Capel, Yvonne Montlake, he won. Mark Stein, who is writing about the NBA, he's launched his own independent thing. He won one. So it's interesting now, this is the first time we're seeing independent writers sort of emerge. And uh, they still haven't released the photography results. I'm waiting to see if Naji Soccer and Serena Morones and... and uh, the great Norm Maves, who were all entered <laughs> as part of johnconzano.com, if they get honored as well. So it, it it's cool to see your name in there. But the coolest part of it for me was like, I get, like, I'm not the only one that liked that column about my seven-year-old daughter. And uh, that means a lot to me.
All right, leave it here. We got so much more to talk about. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. All right, so yesterday I was uh, complaining on the show about that guy who was in the restaurant who started FaceTiming. Don't FaceTime if you're sitting in a restaurant. You know, maybe if you haven't seen your kids in five years, you know, you were uh, lost on a plane that went down, presumed dead, and you're, uh, you know, making your way back to your family and you're having a meal before you get back to your family. Okay, FaceTime. But if you're just sitting in a restaurant at like 1230 in the suburbs, you know, go in your car and FaceTime. You shouldn't be having a FaceTime conversation at full volume. Now, I say that, and uh, Anna today, as we happen to be sitting in a similar place today, <laughs> having a bite to eat, um, Anna said, are you that guy now? Are you the FaceTime guy? Because I was looking at my phone, and I was playing a movie trailer at semi loud volume although there was only one other table in the place that had people exactly but is that poor form to play a movie trailer yes on your phone if you're the same guy that yesterday was saying don't facetime i just i'm here to call you out on uh, any hypocrisy i'm here i don't think a movie trailer is the same as having a conversation with somebody it's pretty similar because that there's a person on the other end who's talking and you're talking and it's like this conversation my whole point is that guy needed to take that thing private. I, I okay. would vote that it's more of a problem that you're watching a movie trailer. <laughs> there we are. I was trying to figure out if I want to see this movie. Well, uh, yeah, but you, maybe that conversation is something serious. Maybe they have no other choice but to answer the call. You can watch that movie trailer anytime. Why do you have to do it in public in front of people? I, on full I was like, volume. I was like the guy in the gym who's sitting on like the leg press machine. Or the leg extension machine and watching, uh, you know, something on Netflix. Uh-huh. That happens, too. <laughs> That's annoying, too. Yeah. Hey, what was it like to sell uh, Girl Scout cookies out in front of the grocery store? Uh, I had no idea how much people love Girl Scout cookies. That's uh, that's the bottom line. I mean, people line up to get these things. And it's not just the Thin Mints. They're really into the Tagalongs and the Dosey Dos. The funny part was watching our nine-year-old try to manage her employee, our seven-year-old, and have her understand that it's really hard to find good help these days like, because what the was going seven-year-old on? kept eating the product. <laughs> we right. look over. She can't perform customer service because she's shoving Samoas in her mouth the entire time. I'm like, hey, you need to tell the customer thank you for the purchase. Okay. Mouth's full of cookies. That, but that's part of the pitch. <laughs> These are so good, I can't help myself. Oh, okay. okay. You guys got home, and and the uh, radio show was over, and it was kind of dinner time, and the seven-year-old looked at me, and she says, not hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because her belly was full of all nine varieties of cookie. Well, I think you broke laws, too, by the way. Oh, stop I'm going to bring it up. No. I'm going to, I think the name of the show is The Bald Face oh, Truth. Oh, my gosh. I think you broke a law. Why? Steven? Don't tell anybody else. But Anna, as they were selling the Girl Scout cookies. Wasn't my idea. <laughs> they opened some boxes of the Girl Scout cookies and let people who were approaching the table sample before they bought. And so you just obviously you just bought a couple of boxes, but is it legal to give out samples if you're not like Costco? Can you do that? I've never seen Girl Scout cookies 
offered on a plate in front of the store like before. This well, is a first. Does like anybody, do you actually need to have a sample? Like if you're buying Girl Scout cookies, haven't you done it before? You know what the flavors are. They're just trying to get a yeah. free cookie out of you. They're getting a free cookie. But That's true. Was it effective? It was um, mildly effective. The biggest problem was when the local middle school let out, because you know middle school kids, they'll just come over, and they were like, give me, give me. they were slipping cookies in their pockets, and they were taking more than one sample. The seven-year-old was barking at them through her mouthful of cookies in her mouth, saying, hey, one per, per one sample what, What's per the draw? Person. What's the draw of the Girl Scout cookie? Um, I think for a lot of people, they see um, two girls... You know, because I, I really tried to, like, let the girls handle almost 100% of the transaction, including making change for people that were paying in cash. I think they're seeing kids that are out there trying to sell something, and it's cute, and they're trying to support the they business. Res- they respect the hustle. They respect the hustle. And I respect people who come up, and they're asking questions of the girls, like, well, which cookie do you like the best? How much money goes to your troop? That kind of stuff. How much know? money does go to the troop? It's a kind of a racket. It's a dollar out of every $6 box of cookies. Wait a minute. So, so they, they get a dollar out of all this? The troop gets a dollar. They're doing all the work. Yeah. The troops are doing the work. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a sweatshop. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> we get our girls kicked, kicked out, of, out of Girl You're Scouts. no longer in Girl Scouts. Sorry. Welcome to the real world, girls. This is how the real world works. Dad says something, and then you get the consequence of this. Welcome to your childhood. Um, I really I liked it, though, because particularly the nine-year-old, um, I was really encouraging them to try and you know ask people if they would like to buy Girl Scout cookies as they were walking by. Because in a sense, I want them to have that feeling of rejection, which is the reality of sales. All right. You know? Matt in Eugene is calling in on the subject. Matt, what's on your mind? Hey, John. How you doing? I'm well. Good. Okay. So, Girl Scout cookies, first of all. If you bought a couple boxes, which it sounds like that's what happened, and then you want to share mm. to encourage, yeah. there's no law breakage. There's no law breakage. Okay. Okay. It's it's the it's the beauty of providing the blessing and utilizing some of your own funds. So <laughs> nice nice work. That's good. I do I think like it's it. frowned upon though in, in the industry. Oh. In oh. what industry? It's, in the in the Girl Scout cookie cult. It's, <laughs> it's frowned upon. It's creative creative marketing. I love yeah. it. I love All right. It. And then I, I, and then real, on. he's not done. Huh? Real, real quick, FaceTime, movie trailer. John, you can't be watching a movie trailer. <laughs> but I was trying to say to Anna, should we go see this movie sometime? Here's yeah, the trailer. Gotta, don't bother people with your movie trailer. I appreciate somebody having a chance to FaceTime a friend or a family member oh, when they need to. There you go. I'm sorry. All right. But All I right. love the show. You guys are great. Have a good thank, night. Thank you, man. There he goes. <laughs> um, thank you. I like his pregnant pauses. Like it makes me sit up and like listen he's to what he's very measured. Yeah. In how he was speaking. Yeah, he's, we he's should thought all about this. Yeah, he's definitely yeah. thought Learn about this. To speak that way. Um, the seven-year-old gets the credit for the sample idea. Yeah, because she's gonna rip those boxes up. And... Well, no, she had that idea. We we had our storage of, you know, extra cookies that we bought. 
at home. Yeah, where are these cookies? I haven't seen these cookies. If I told you, they would disappear. So you're just giving them away to strangers in front of the store? I think they're in the seven-year-old's room. I want to check that. <laughs> yeah, they're in her The wrappers are there. They're in her closet. No, because she said, as we prepared to go do the booth, she said, hey, could we give out free samples? Because that seems to work at Costco. Mm. That's, that bad. was her connection to Not that. Not a bad marketing idea. Did you ever do any of this door-to-door stuff? Or Heck yeah. Se- what did you sell? I sold world's finest chocolate bars for a dollar. I remember that. Remember? Yeah. Were they a dollar when you sold them to? It was dollar and it was Little League. Yeah, it was and Little League. They gave us the box. And what I ended up doing is eating most of them. Yeah. And then my parents had to buy the box. So your family yeah. wound up owing the money. I'd be like the, the corner crack dealer who smoked all the crack. <laughs> and they had to owe the big boss the money, you know? Hey, where's where's my proceeds? I'll get it to you next week. Steven, did you sell anything? What did you sell? Yeah, I, it was the same thing. It was the the chocolate bars. And I remember the, yeah, I went around like my street and then I just didn't really want to. So I think my parents kind of sold them for me. Mm. There you go. Uh, I did. I had a little entrepreneurial spirit, though. Like I climbed the trees in front of my parents' house, cut down mistletoe one Christmas, sold that in front of the grocery store. I also, in the back of a magazine, there was a magazine where, you know, back in the day when kids would read magazines, it was like, sell a bunch of these magazine subscriptions and you can get prizes. Yeah. So they sent you the magazine and all the prizes looked amazing in the book. And so I went door to door, you know, hawking magazines Mm -hmm. to to strangers. And by the way, my parents didn't go with me. I went door to door. (laughs) Yeah. Like in town. Yeah. It was a a different time. Serial killers had it so much easier back then. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, my parents just said, go. <laughs> and I was, like, nine. Right. Knocking on who knows what door, right. you know? Right. But nowadays, kids are like, you can't play outside unless I am observing you, <laughs> you know? Like, a little different world. <laughs> well, that's like, yesterday, you're not supposed to leave the cookie booth unmanned, right? And you're not supposed to leave the girls there either by themselves. And so... They decided at the same time that they wanted to take their union-required bathroom break. And I said, well, you better stay together and hustle back. They did not. So they left me standing there, and these people were walking by. Wait, wait, you're, you're standing at the, alone at the alone cookie stand? at the Girl Scout booth. And people are walking by going, you look a little old to be selling Girl Scouts. <laughs> It's like, I know. They're on their break, okay? I love that. Jo- oh. John's in Klamath Falls. John, go ahead, quickly. Uh, real quick, I agree with you, John. Uh, she did break the law. She wasn't selling cookies at that point. She was serving cookies. And in order to serve, you have to have a food handler's card. There you go, Anna. <laughs> Where's your food handler's card? <laughs> oh, no. Thank you, John in Klamath Falls. I should have called 911. When I heard that was happening. But the previous caller said you, you just opened your own box of cookies. Yeah. And you were just sharing. Yeah. No, we weren't so. really giving samples. We were just, you know, putting some on a plate. And if people happened to take some. Yeah. I hope, I hope it worked. But I hope that I can also find some of these cookies after the show. No such luck. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. The five at five's coming up top of the hour. Punch it audio in the happy hour as well. I hope you're here for it. You got the bald face truth statewide. On the BFT Radio Network. I appreciate all of you who make this show part of your day. We, we try to have fun. Happy hour uh, always delivers. Leave it locked in right here. Do you have the chief Saholic lawyer in your five at five? I thought about it. I, can I just play this clip? 
Because people don't know the Chiefs superfan, Chiefsaholic, pled guilty. Is it pled or pleaded? Pleaded guilty? I always said pleaded, but I think both are technically Pleaded accurate. guilty on bank robbery charges. And his lawyer, Matthew Merriman, addressed the media on the courthouse steps You literally couldn't make it up. So absurd. So ridiculous. I'm going to play this clip. From the beginning of this case, folks, the government has been blitzing, and Xavier's pocket was collapsing. But today, Xavier stepped into the pressure. He took responsibility for his actions. He stood up in court, humble and repentant, and admitted what he had done. Now, if I know anything about Xavier, and if the Chief's Kingdom knows anything about Chief Saholic, we know that he doesn't give up. We know that if he stumbled and he fell, he didn't let his knee touch the ground. And that's because he's capable of doing a great thing. And he knows that there's still hope. We still have a lot of work to do on his case, but Xavier wants everyone to know that he loves the Chief's Kingdom, he loves Kansas City, and he hopes that you'll rally to his support. Thank you and God bless. Xavier Babadu, known as Chief Saholic. Uh, pled guilty to 19 criminal counts. Charges carry a sentence of maximum sentence of 50 years in prison. And his attorney's out here making jokes. That's you know? weird. It is very. It's. I the first thing I thought is, um, anybody who has that guy as an attorney <laughs> is dumber than I thought. He's a real football guy, though. You know what? Chiefs. <laughs> he's got to. He's got to go in. Chiefs a holic. Chiefs a holic. But he's going to be in prison for 50 years thinking about, why did I hire the wrong attorney? Well, his knee didn't touch, so it's okay. <laughs> he, made, he made a football move. It's fine. I'm glad that didn't make the five at five. There's yeah. so many better things that you have. I know you do. Yeah. All right, here we go. The five biggest stories. The five at five. Number one. I don't know if this is better, but let's talk about it. Kyle Filipowski, uh... We'll be back on the court uh, tonight. So all this chatter about the fans rushing the court and how he got hurt and had a, a sprained ankle, uh, he will not miss any games. Uh, they'll be playing against the Louisville Cardinals uh, tonight. This is like when Mr. Miyagi slapped his hands together, rubbed them together, and healed Daniel's son's ankle. You know, this is miraculous. Pat Morita, anywhere near Duke's campus this may he, week? May he rest in, may he rest the in peace. the spirit of Pat Morita. The healing technique is amazing. So this is not going to help the proponents of keep those kids off my lawn. Right. Much ado about nothing? So Jay or... Bills wants him arrested, but uh, he can play the next game. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness he wasn't really hurt, you know? Um I do still think that security just needs to delay fans a little bit, temper the enthusiasm just a touch. 
I also think, like, the more I thought about Filipowski and his exit from the court, if you know you're in a court-rushing scenario, you might want to show a little more alacrity leaving the court. <laughs> Put a little hustle in that. Stuff. You know? <laughs> I mean, can I see a hustle play? It's like a guy crossing the crosswalk, you know, in front of your car and, you know, pretending to go fast. Filipowski's going to play. I'm glad he's okay, but I got to say, I thought of Mr. Miyagi from the Karate Kid. I did. Number two. Uh, the yeah, Portland, no son. <laughs> Portland Timbers. Don't do that. Don't, no, don't do that. Uh, the Portland Timbers have terminated their corporate partnership with DeBella. Effective immediately, the team announced today. That is a home improvement contractor in Hillsboro, and it was the team's newest jersey sponsor. However, a former executive has accused the CEO of the company of unwanted advances and sexual harassment of at least three female employees. Those allegations just surfaced in a court filing February 23rd. And the Timbers are saying, hey, they didn't know about these allegations until February 27th. Once they learned it, they quickly dropped DeBella as a sponsor. Because guess what? The Timbers cannot have anything like that associated with them. Yeah, but didn't they, I mean, in all fairness, didn't the Timbers hire a coach who had said some pretty, uh, you know, raw things on social media? Yeah. So it, it it's just a bad look all the way around, and that's why you've got to be impeccable if you're trying to re- rebuild trust. Now, I like that they cut bait after only one game. If this is when they found out, then they made the right move in getting to it quickly. But it's still a bad look when you look at the totality and the uh, pile of evidence that suggests that the Timbers are asleep at the wheel. One game is the jersey sponsor. (laughs) Number three. Mm, Let's talk about Caleb Williams, who says that he would be excited to be drafted by the Bears or the Commanders. So he's trying to end any speculation about his plans amid the talks of having a preference of where he wanted to play. He told ESPN, I'm not pushing any agenda. At the end of the day, the Bears have the last say. And regardless of how he feels, he's not pushing in an agenda of where he wants to go. He's excited for whatever comes. Excited for whatever comes. Not pushing an agenda? I don't buy. (laughs) Everyone's pushing an agenda. Every player at that combine is pushing an agenda. And, you know, he's going to meet with the Bears. He says he's intrigued by him. Commander's up there high as well. Mel Kuyper Jr. thinks that it's going to go Caleb Williams at one, Jaden Daniels at two, Drake May at three. So while Jaden comes in with all that momentum, right, perfect for today's NFL, he draws comps to Lamar Jackson. Herm Edwards says he's Randall Cunningham. I'll take both, right? Drake May did not have great momentum down the stretch. He had three games that left you kind of scratching your head. He had a really good 2022, lost his coordinator, lost his top receiver. Excuses you can't make for a college quarterback. Some of the layups, the easy throws, he wasn't accurate and precise with. That's why Jaden Daniels is a second quarterback, and Drake May goes three overall. There you go. Second quarterback, three overall at that position. We'll see how it unfolds. I expect uh, there will be the usual flurry of trades and uncertainty and a lot of drama and a lot of news reports. But Caleb Williams has been the favorite to be the top pick for some time. Um, you know, it, he declared for the da- draft in January. 
And then he sort of signaled for a while, like, you know, hey, maybe I will, maybe I won't. And you got to represent himself, agent, client, one and the same. Now he's saying he'll, he'll be okay wherever he goes. So he may be wrapping his head around the reality that he doesn't get to draft the team. He gets drafted. Number four. Uh, Stacy Wakefield, the widow of former Boston Red Sox pitcher and two-time World Series champion Tim Wakefield, she has died. Her family said in a statement that she died today at her home in Massachusetts. That's less than five months after her husband died at the age of 57. She was 53. Uh, so again, Tim Wakefield died just under five months ago. The family did mention a diagnosis, but did not provide a cause of death for Stacy Wakefield's death. Um, last fall, Kurt Schilling said on a podcast that both of the Wakefields had been diagnosed with cancer, Tim with brain cancer, and yeah. Stacy with pancreatic cancer. And, and he got in trouble. Schilling got in trouble for that because Wake, the Wakefields had not publicly talked about that. Yeah. And it, this is a sad story. They have a 20-year-old son. They have a 19-year-old daughter. And in a period of five months, dad and mom, who, uh, you know, were uh, obviously their tent poles, uh, are both dead. And really sad. This is the saddest thing I've ever seen. You've got glassy eyes right now. Why? I, I just, I mean, you know, I just imagine what it's been like for their family this last half year. That's awful. Unimaginable. Sad stuff. Uh, Stacy Wakefield was 57. Number five. Okay, well, let's switch it up. Um, do you want to hear about Deion Sanders or Kirk Cousins and his gold both. and titanium I need, grill? I need to hear both. Okay, so... Wait, wait. Dion? Dion first. Dion first. Okay. He's talking about how to build on that initial hype at Colorado, and he's eyeing a bowl game for his team in uh, year two. So he's not ramping down at all. He's already, you know, looking to improve upon the early success that they had last season and uh, and really setting his setting his sights on a bowl game. All right, let's go through their schedule real quick, you know, just see, can he get to six? He's got North Dakota State in the opener. It's not a gimme. North Dakota State's a really good lower division team but they should win it because it's at Folsom Field and you are the uh, you're the power five conference or the power four conference member then it's Nebraska in week two Colorado State in week three now remember Colorado State gave them all they could handle a year ago mm -hmm. so I think that's a dicey game again this year I'll give them a two and one start then it's Baylor Central Florida Kansas State Arizona um, I'm gonna give him two more there he's got four He's got Cincinnati, Texas Tech, Utah. I have him at five. Kansas is a loss. Kansas is good. Um, I think he'll head into the Oklahoma State game either at five or six wins. I think it's realistic to think about a bowl game if you're Deion Sanders. It's a step forward. But let's face it, part of that is it's an easier conference. You're going to run into Cincinnati, Texas Tech. You'll see Arizona. They're in a little bit of a rebuild. Kansas State, Central Florida, Baylor. I think he'll find five or six wins in there. I think it, that's legit. I think it's interesting that the article on CBS Sports talking about this 
has an ad from Oregon <laughs> that says, go Ducks, drink Pepsi. So Oregon's spending that money. Like if you're, I'm sure that's a targeted ad, yeah, right? Yeah, of so course. So it's like if I'm reading that story about Deion Sanders, Oregon's like, hey, we're, you know, we just want to be in the Funnel conversation. Funnel off some of that conversation. Yeah. But the Big the Big 12 is going to be interesting for, for two state schools. One, I think Colorado will have an easier time getting trajectory in the Big 12 than they would have in the Pac-12. So I think Dion's in a better conference to build what he wants to build. Uh, secondarily, you know, he could win six. He could win seven if, you know, if they're really good. Like, I think there's a ceiling there for six or seven, but I'll put him at five or six for now. Uh, I don't want to get sucked into the hype. Secondary thing is Arizona and Utah, I think, are going to enjoy the same ride. Kansas is good in that Kansas is going to be the favorite along with Utah to win the Big 12. So I look at those two schools maybe being in the Big 12 championship game. But I think Arizona, Colorado, Utah are all going to have a lot of fun playing in the Big 12. What do you got with Kirk Cousins as 5B? Uh, 5B is I don't know what uh, Kirk Cousins is trying to do, but he has had a dentist fashion himself a new gold and titanium grill. This is a piece of jewelry. Um, it looks terrible, uh, but I, 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 maybe he's just trying to get away from the I'm the Mervyn's dad, you know, like I shop at Kohl's look. Well, remember when he put the chains on, the yep. uh, the Kirko chains, mm-hmm. you know, all that? So, yep, so he's taking this a step yeah. further. He's not going to just settle with the durable titanium and gold uh, grill. He's going to actually bling it out. He's not done yet. There's going to be gold, and it sounds like there's going to be some shiny things oh boy. on on the teeth. Uh, he's a little dorky. <laughs> this doesn't help. It's He's a dorky <laughs> guy, and he's trying to play cool or be make fun of himself i don't know it doesn't it's not really working is it it's just very confusing yeah (laughs) he's awkward (laughs) so there you go um good luck to the cousins family with that yeah um all right steven coach prime bowl eligible or not next season i'm gonna go yeah looking at their schedule like you said going through it i I think six is in there i I, the first game though does is a little scary because North Dakota State like that's a good program, yes. um, but I think if they get that one, and I think that's a big if. Uh, I think they get at least six. I think. I think they game. could be two and one. They're going to lose one of the first three. Yeah, because they could lose that opener. They could. North Dakota State could beat them, it, but I think Nebraska, then Colorado State. That's that's a coin flip. Coin flip. Now there is a chance like if they start zero and three or one and two that. They don't get to a bowl game, but I think I think they'll be sitting on five with a couple games to go. And but the problem I had last year was the way they just kind of you know faded. They just you know they started. They were a lot of fun and a lot of hype, and then Oregon punched them in the mouth, knocked them out, and then down the stretch they just faded. They were you know they were a shell of themselves. Other than maybe showing a little fight in the Oregon State game, they just kind of you know, went away in a way that, like, got real quiet. But I think you're right on with the Big 12 and, 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 anal- and analysis because uh, that conference, n- none of those teams scare you, right? Like, And I think that's why, that plays into a lot of the six wins that I think they can get. If it was the Pac-12 again, I don't think they can get six wins because that conference would be too good. But you go to the Big 12, like Cincinnati, Houston, Utah, like Oklahoma State, those teams don't scare you. So I, I think they can get some of these wins against those type of teams uh, especially if they aren't, you know, 0-3 to start the season and they haven't lost all the momentum. I think that was maybe part of the incentive for Colorado to make that move, in addition to the fact that they got 
a $2.5 million bonus to leave the Pac-12 that later turned out to be in the contract. But think about this. I saw the story today. Kansas, you know, took Lance Leopold's contract and bumped him up to $7 million a year. Okay, so that puts him in the top three in the Big 12 as it pertains to coaching salary. And it's three times his initial salary at Kansas. He's done a nice job. He won nine games last year. Kansas has got it going. And I think Kansas is going to be at the top of the Big 12 with Utah. I think Colorado has a chance to be in the second tier. And I think they could be, like a surprise year for Colorado might be seven wins. But, you know, there'd be a nice, solid, we're in a bowl game building year. But as I look at Coach Prime's trajectory, if he stays at Colorado, I think he's got an easier time getting to the playoff in Colorado than he would have in the Pac-12 or anywhere else. I agree. And you look at, you know, they got they have odds out already for the conference. Uh, Big 12, Kansas State's the favorite with Utah right after them. And then Kansas, as you said, third place. So, you know, Colorado, 50-1 to 1 to win the Big 12. They're towards the bottom, but... Uh, What's you know, Utah's odds? What's uh, Utah? Utah is plus three fifty. Kansas State yeah. the favorite at plus three hundred. Kansas at plus six fifty. Utah's then, the pick, and then Arizona Utah, at plus yeah. seven fifty. Utah's the pick. It's Utah, and it'll be Utah Kansas in the title game. You watch, you watch uh, as that unfolds. All right, we got punch it audio coming up. Anna, thank you. Yeah, appreciate you. Any samples, Girl Scout samples? You're gonna give me, or you know, share uh, your share those cookies. You gotta look around in the house for them. No, that's not how it works. That's yeah, a little fun, bit yeah. of a treasure hunt. Yeah. Yeah. It's not how it works. By the time I find them, I'll be I'll be hangry. <laughs> All right. Punch and audio still ahead. I have a weird job. I bet you have a weird job as well. If I try to explain my job. Let's say I was trying to explain my job to a Martian. Got a couple of sentences to do it. What I do, I watch sports and then I tell people what I think about it. Steven, what's your job in a couple of sentences? I push buttons and allow people to hear sports takes. Like even a pilot would would have a weird job. They'd say, you know, I get on a large vessel carrying humans and I navigate it through the air. Think about your job in those in those uh in that context. It's strange. Uh NFL official. I run around on a field watching the greatest athletes in the world while calling them for infractions, <laughs> you know, penalizing them, for throwing penalty flags at them. Uh, we're going to play some punch and audio. Let's do it. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start in Denver, where the Broncos, unhappy with Russell Wilson at quarterback, Sean Payton, the coach, talking to media. How long is this going to take? How long will the saga of Russell Wilson take to sort out? Punch it. I expect that we're going to know fairly quickly. I said it's the Super Bowl, but I think more specifically, I think... uh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood next week where we're going to – there's a couple factors here. You know, obviously the cap projections came out. Um, we're further down the road with the draft class, uh, obviously the pro-free agents. <clears throat> so I would I would anticipate it being, uh, you know, within the next two weeks. I, I, I saw this, like, humorous meme the other day where there was a, a Bronco fan with a shirt on and there was, like, eight quarterbacks – names with 
across through it, you know, and and he's drinking the quarterback Kool-Aid. And, I, you know, our, our job is to make sure that this next one, you know, doesn't have a line through it. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, there's still a hangover to the Russell Wilson thing, even if the Broncos move on. They traded three players and four draft picks and heavily invested in Wilson. Big contract, big investment. It hasn't panned out. So now they're at the face-saving moment of truth. Like, what do they get for him? What is the trade market for Russell Wilson? The, the Broncos say they haven't been contacted. Wilson says nobody's contacted him. I, I have a hard time thinking anybody's going to give up anything of value to trade for him. I just, you know, I guess it remains possible, but feels more likely that this is a Broncos team that's eventually just going to have to cut ties with him. I, I don't know. Keep an eye on it. Zach Wilson, he's been given permission to seek a trade. Jets general manager Joe Douglas, punch it. Well, I've had good conversation with his agent Brian Ariel. Um, we where we are exactly. We, we've given we've given them permission um, to talk to other teams about a trade. Um, I'm going to circle back with Brian at some point, um, either this week or next week, just to see how those conversations go. Um, but um, other than that, there's there's nothing else to report. Nothing to report. Uh, again, franchise moving on from a quarterback. But the Jets are interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there's a more interesting story in the NFL right now than Aaron Rodgers in this comeback season. Does all the investment, all the hype, the trade for Rodgers, does it all fizzle out in another early season injury? Or does he play a season and lead the Jets in deep into the playoffs? Like, I think there's a lot there for Aaron Rodgers and you know Ian O'Connor's got a book out a new book it's a biography of Aaron Rodgers and coincides with next season it's going to be interesting to see the Jets because Aaron Rodgers injury was a big part of what went wrong with the New York Jets no way around it Nicole Hardman who ended up with the Kansas City Chiefs and caught the game-winning pass in the Super Bowl for the Chiefs was asked what went wrong with the Jets for him punch it y'all treat certain guys that shouldn't be treated like they should be treated and i just feel like it's not an established coaching staff there as well like you just got a new coach staff that came in it's no standard there it's like everybody do what they want to do and defense have a more of a stabilized standard with that with the coaching staff on that side so you could tell the defense got a standard but the offense is just like all right we'll just figure it out it's aaron show let aaron do what aaron do you know what i mean but then when aaron go down it's like we don't know what to do. He talked on the Pivot podcast, wide-ranging inter- interview, but he spoke a lot about his time with the Jets, um, you know, and pretty underwhelming four years with the Chiefs. Then he goes to the Jets, then he ends up back with the Chiefs, and so gets traded back. But apparently during the interview, he opened up the the Jets to a possible tampering charge. Right? So, you know, because did he reveal? He said he was so checked out. He talked to Brett Veach. He talked to Pat Mahomes. He said, come get me. He said that on the record. It was an interesting interview because, yeah, he talked really openly about how bad the Jets organization is. I mean, and to admit that you're checked out and you're wanting to trade, telling Pat Mahomes, come get me, like, that's weird. And then, you know, he talked about the culture just, he goes, they weren't doing winning things. You know, they just had helmets laying around. It was... It was a free for all. Like it was uh, very interesting inside 
of looking at how the Jets kind of ran last season with Aaron Rodgers. That kind of was a circus there. And so he's since come out on social media and say, hey, no, I didn't have contact with the Jets prior, or, or excuse me, uh, I didn't have contact with the Chiefs prior to being traded. But McColl Hardman opened a can of worms there. And I don't think this is going to be the end of it. I think the Jets will say some stuff back. The NFL may weigh in. Chiefs kind of have become a target because they win. Antoine Staley of the New York Daily News joined this show. I asked him about Bo Nix. Staley's at the Combine. So is Bo Nix. What are people saying about Oregon's former quarterback? Punch it. I was talking to some people uh, starting at the Senior Bowl and even at the Combine. And, you know, I talked to a person from ESPN, and they could kind of compare them to Jimmy Garoppolo, kind of a little bit more of a mobile Jimmy Garoppolo. And whatever you might think, Jimmy Garoppolo's had a nice career. But that seems like to be the uh, compliment to Bo Nix. I think he, you know, really improved his stock coming into Oregon. And I was there when, you know, he first transferred and had that electric pro, uh, spring practice, you know, there, the spring game. And, you know, I think that really set him off with emotion for the next couple of years. You know, just to have, just to, for him to be in the conversation to be potentially drafted in the first round, I think it speaks volumes of just the growth that he's made. Yeah, it speaks volumes to his growth. But I also think, there's a little bit of Brock Purdy syndrome in the background of the Bo Nix story right now. Brock Purdy picked late in the draft, had a whole bunch of college starts, and he had like 48 starts at Iowa State. Bo Nix, 61 starts at Oregon. You're getting a very experienced quarterback, an older quarterback, a guy who might be more ready-made to step into an NFL situation and play. Um, keep an eye on Bo Nix. I don't think he's a first-round guy. I don't. I said that in the beginning. I still stand by it. I think he's a second, third-round guy. In fact, I think it would be better for Bo Nix to go later rather than earlier, but I've seen some mock drafts with people saying he could be the fourth or fifth quarterback off the board. I don't see it that way. Uh, I certainly would take Michael Penix Jr., Jaden Daniels, Drake May, Caleb Williams in front of him. And so for me, makes him a second, maybe a third-round guy, uh, Steven, where's he going to go in the draft? Yeah, I mean, you talked about this. You know, th- it only takes one team, right? It takes one team in the NFL to like you. And after those top three picks, Caleb Williams, Drake May, Jane Daniels, whatever order you have them in, it's kind of like pick your flavor of what you want to have. Do you want Michael Panks Jr. who can throw that deep ball but has had injury concerns, isn't necessarily mobile, or Bo Nix who, you know, accurate, you know, on the, in the inside passing game is mobile, can run around a little bit. Um, you know, there's some other guys out there as well that you can look at and you can say, hey, you know, maybe we'll pick them. So I think I think he sneaks in the first round. I think someone maybe trades back in towards the end of the first round just because they can get that extra year on the contract. Uh, kind of like the Ravens did with Lamar Jackson back in the day. They get they traded back in, got him with the final pick in the first round. I think someone does that. I think it's so valuable to get, be able to have that fifth-year option on the quarterback uh, and so I think I do. I think Bo Nix sneaks into the first round. Shockingly, you know, if you told me this before the season, I wouldn't have believed you. But I think he gets in. I think there's some uh, positive momentum going for him. Last night in the NBA, 59-foot buzzer beater. Cavs stunned the Mavs. You're going to hear it three different ways here. Here's first the Cavs radio call. Punch it. Leave it inbound. Just to the left of the Cavs bench. All we need Leave is a deflection. Pass deflected by Mobley, but grabbed by Doncic. Doncic bounced underneath the PJ, and he laid it in with 2.6 to go. Cavs out of timeout. Struess into Mobley. Back to Max. Half-court shot. Good! Good! He hit it! 
Jams win! This place is going crazy! Struess with a 59-footer to win it. Here it. Here's how it sounded on TV. Two seconds left. The Cavs are out of timeouts. They have to go 94 feet. Struess from midcourt. Stunning half-court game-winning shot. Max Struess got it done. Big night. There was a lot of attention on uh, a lot of other players, but what a wild finish. And by the way, Struess was fire down the stretch. Five of five from three-point range in the final three and a half minutes. Finished with 21. Could not miss. But here's how it sounded in Dallas as the Mavericks had a different tone to the finish. Punch it. Cleveland will take the ball out of bounds. I love this game. <laughs> love it a lot more if they make a shot here. Deflection! And Luka comes away with it. Six seconds, five seconds, underneath Washington! 2.6 to go! They're out of timeouts! Dallas leads by one! Mobley, Struce, Haheem! Oh no! Oh no! Oh no! Matt Struce, I don't believe it! They gotta review it. I almost love the Mavericks call better, Stephen. Oh, that's the best. The, oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, because we've all been there, like, as a fan. You're like, you think you got the win, and then out of nowhere, man. 59-footer. What a what a heartbreaker, man. Uh, I, I hate to do this to bring everybody down, but the Blazers lost again last night, ending a winless February or ensuring a winless February, 0-9 in the month. Chauncey Billups said he was proud of the effort. Punch it. This dude had 12-10 and 10 and uh... – uh, still in two block. I mean, at the half, I mean, it's tough to. How can you absorb that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? These dudes play, man. My dudes play, man. They play so hard. You know, they play so hard. They gave it all they had. I'm proud as hell of them. Um, you know, obviously we shot the ball much better tonight, but our flow was just much better. Um, and that's a hell of a team over there. DeAndre Ayton left with a sprained right hand. Hope he got up his driveway okay. Meanwhile, Peter King talking on the Dan Patrick Show about the downfall of the Pac-12 conference and the chaos of realignment captured it well yesterday. Punch it. Oh, I, I'm yelling at the clouds. I'm Clint <laughs> How in the world can the head coach at UCLA go to become the offensive coordinator at a school in the same conference. What is wrong with this picture? I'll tell you what's wrong with this picture. You know, the Pac-12 should be the Pac-12. The idiots who put the Pac-12 in the Big Ten are idiots. They just are. There it is. Speaking a lot of truth, Peter King. I'm efforting Peter King. I'd love to get him on the show. He's making rounds. He has retired. He's hanging it up. A lot of anti-Peter King people saying, hey, if he's retired, why won't he go away? Well, he's doing a media tour talking about his career. I think he's an interesting figure in sports media and the NFL. 
as he had the access, he got the interviews, his Monday morning quarterback reports were prolific. I don't think he's going to be able to turn the faucet off and just walk away. We'll see what happens to Peter King, but love that he's talking and making sense of uh, the media world and the Pac-12 and the Big Ten. And Chip Kelly going to Ohio State as a coordinator? Come on. You didn't have that on your bingo card. Some parting thoughts coming up. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Well, it's kind of a weird day when you have an attorney on the steps of a courthouse using sports metaphors to talk about his client's innocence or guilt. I played the clip earlier of the lawyer, Matthew Merriman, who was addressing media on the steps of the courthouse. Um, Stephen, he stayed in character, stayed true to form. Is it, uh, is it poor form for this guy to, as an attorney representing Chief Zaholic to do this, or is this exactly what you expect from a rabid Kansas City Chiefs fan who's probably still drunk off the Super Bowl who robbed a bunch of banks? I mean, I, it's on brand, and I don't know that I would say I expected it, but it does make a lot of sense that this is the way it is. Now, I also can't take him seriously. So, like, no way would I ever want Chiefs Hogs ever to get out of prison because of this. Like, I want him to stay there forever because the fact that that's what his lawyer is going to say, like, you're not a serious person and you, and you did these things because you're a crazy person. So, I, I didn't I didn't expect this, John. I didn't expect the lawyer to come out and do a bunch of NFL analogies. You know, he would have kept the knee up. He had to uh, face the pressure, but... It makes a lot of sense. And you look at the guy, he's wearing a you know a Chiefs wolf mask all the time. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I guess it does. On that note, can I ask you this? We were talking about game-winning shots. Remember Damian Lillard, game-winning shot to uh, win a series. Lillard for the win. Yes! Lillard wins it! And the There's one way to put it. Here's another way. Howard is defending Aldridge. So in case the Blazers go for a two to their best player, Howard is defending him. Batum throws to Lillard. A three for the game. In an absolutely incredible first round playoff series that ends in the most dramatic way possible. Damian Lillard takes an inbounds pass from Nikola Batum and nails a three-pointer. There was absolutely no doubt. Chandler Parsons ran at him late, but far too late. And Lillard connects as the horn sounds and the Blazers walk off the court winners 99-98. And for the first time in 14 years, the Blazers have won a playoff series and they couldn't have done it in a more thrilling fashion. You like that cut, Stephen? Yeah, I, I I like it. As a Blazer fan, I uh, I remember the shot. I remember the feels that I had. And uh, I mean, great call by Wheels. Tone Antonio Harvey, you know, add a little bit to it. Mark Mason in the background. You hear that? You hear the Sean Lee yes. drop of Rip City. Like it just, it all just, it all clicks together. It all, it all makes one good clip, man. How is it better than this one though? Brandon Roy. Blake to inbound. The Blazers have a twenty-second timeout. 
Nate McMillan deciding whether to use it. Blake now throws to Roy. Brandon, a three-pointer out front. Hit it! Yes, he did! Oh, yeah! Wow! Are you kidding me? The yes, natural, sir. the natural buries a 30-footer at the buzzer. And the Blazers run off the court. A winner by two. Now, the stakes of those two things are much different. This is a November game against the Rockets. Roy hits the game winner. Brian Wheeler on the call. The other one was Damian Lillard to win a series against the Rockets. Um, bet Which is the better call? The Rockets one is a little bit better for me. I I don't like I never liked the natural as a nickname. So the fact yeah. that he throws the natural in there just I don't know it throws me off a little bit. But um yeah I mean just the the intensity of the call and I think that the outside noise like they were both really loud and both you know could hear Mark Mason but the way Mason talks on the Dame one and then you hear Sean Lee Rip City like it's the background noise that almost makes it that much better makes it my, one of my favorite calls. So I, I would go with the Houston one of Damian Lillard. How about Damian Lillard hitting the 37-foot shot in the face of Paul George to send the Blazers into a frenzy into the next round of the playoffs, feeling a Western Conference Finals run? Granted, yes, it was lined up for the Blazers, but you can only play and beat the opponent that's in front of you. I I remember the catharsis that happened uh, you know, as Lillard hits the shot to you know beat the beat the rockets and win a series but to me it was nothing like the 37 foot shot where he sidesteps paul george remember lillard talked about it too yeah i so i was i mean he was in front of me and i was looking at the clock and the clock was going down and it was like a lot of space between us and i was like the I got to a spot. I dribbled over to the left a little bit, like towards the middle, and I was at a spot. I was like, it's deep, but I was comfortable right there if I could just raise up and just shoot the ball. And um, he was like a little bit out, and I was looking at the clock trying to see how long he would stay that far away from me. Um, but then I was like, all right, he going to realize that I'm going to have to shoot a jump and I'm not going to drive if I wait too long. So I went between the legs to get him to move a little bit to my left. <laughs> And I crossed over right to left between the legs, and he was on on the left side of my body. And then right after I went between the legs, it was like two seconds left, and he moved, he was a little bit to my left. And I just sidestepped to the right, and I got a clear look at the brim. You know, he he contested it pretty good, but he was to the left side of me, and I was so it was like it didn't really have an effect on on the shot. I remember this call from Brian Wheeler on the Blazers radio. George, five seconds. George backing up. Miller doesn't want to pick. Dame going for the win. A three-pointer for the game. There it was, three-pointer for the game. Uh, And I know Mike Tirico and others had the call, but I want to bring that that Wheeler comparison in just so we can kind of line those cuts up. Uh, Being able to hear Lillard talk about it, the catharsis of it, granted, uh, Paul George later said it was a bad shot, but it's a shot that Lillard took and a shot that Lillard made. So I don't know if you can call a made shot a bad shot. But compare that one, Stephen. Is that the greatest shot in Blazers history? Um, 
yeah, I, I caution yeah. you. I mean, I I'm not saying because because 77 they win a championship, but there's no game winning shot. So no disrespect to the 77 championship team and Bobby Gross and and uh, Dr. Jack and Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas. Like I, I'll put 77 as the best season ever. But is that the greatest shot ever? <laughs> I'm like racking my brain to try to think if there's another one. I feel like um, I'm trying to find this game here. Was the game four Blazers Suns 1992 153 151? Okay. I believe it was a. Uh, I don't know Ooh. if it was. A, I don't know if it was a uh, last second shot, but I remember that was a really good game. And I think going back to my brain, is it Jerome Kersey hit like a half court shot to end the third <sighs> quarter? No, 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 no. Not that one. I, I feel like there was a fourth quarter shot, but that was the only one I could wrap my brain. So maybe, yeah, I think it's probably the biggest shot in Trailblazer history that I can think of. Like because it's like you said, there's no shot that necessarily stands out from the '77 team. Um, and even like during the '90s, there wasn't like there was one standout shot by Drexler or Porter. I mean, Porter three over Stockton. That, that's been a shot. I remember that one. But no, I think I think the Dame shot is probably bigger. It, I I think that shot is the biggest shot now. The big, the turning point in the Blazers series in '77 was the fist fight between, uh, you know, Daryl Dawkins and Maurice Lucas. It starts on the Bobby Gross breakaway, and Dawkins kind of fouls Gross in a hard way, and is you know sending a message uh, to end Game Two. And I remember talking to Doctor Jack about that because I happened to be covering the Pistons Spurs series, NBA Finals series, and I believe the. You know, the uh, the Spurs were up 2-zip as that series headed to Detroit, or maybe Detroit. Yeah, I think it was up 2-zip. They were up 2 nothing and had won the first two games decisively. I'm boarding a plane in San Antonio for Detroit at like 7 o'clock in the morning, the morning after game two, and the guy in front of me in line is Dr. Jack. And I said to him, hey, 2-0 series lead, and he's like, just like we were. And this was the game two fight. And it wasn't a shot that turned the series in 77. People remember it was the fact that the Blazers, who had been pushed around in games one and two, showed some fight and basically told Daryl Dawkins, you know, we're not going to we're not going to stand for this. Into Gilliam, put it up, doesn't drop. Dawkins, the rebound, along with Bob Gross. And now Daryl Dawkins. Oh, look at Ramsey. He, oh, here we go. We got a fight. In the end, I I have, you know, I had Daryl Dawkins on the show in 2015, in you know nine years ago, and we did an interview about it, and he talked about that moment at the next game because the very next game, what happens? Everyone is anticipating that this fight, this battle, this Mister Tough Guy routine that Dawkins and and Lucas had back and forth was going to continue, and instead. Maurice Lucas, in a brilliant, you know, strategic psychological warfare moment, instead of continuing the fight during the pregame introductions, he's announced, and what does he do? He runs down to the 76ers bench 
and shakes Daryl Dawkins' hand. So you give me the 37-foot you know, shot from Damian Lillard to win a series and propel the Blazers toward the Western Conference Finals. Biggest shot in, in franchise history. Biggest handshake in franchise history. Maurice Lucas running down to Daryl Dawkins before the game. Dawkins didn't know what to do. And it, it put him in a psychological funk because he was ready to fight. And here came Maurice Lucas, who walked over and shook his hand. And Bill Walton will talk about it. Dr. Jack talked about it. Even Dawkins on this show talked about it years ago and said, you know, it was it just jarred him. It wasn't what he expected, and it messed with him. And the Blazers go on to, you know, recapture that series, lead it, and ultimately win it. And the rest is history. All right, we're back tomorrow with another great show. The Bald Face Truth not here for a long time, just a good time.